Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and uh, I think I said this last episode, but uh, welcome to what might be the shortest episode of X Lapsed. I, I really mean it this time. <laughs> this is our uh, our landmark 25th episode where we're going to be talking about X-Men Volume 5, Number 3. Now, this is the only issue of X-Men that shipped in December 2019. Um, X-Men, for what I'm sure is an actual reason, was the only Dawn of X book not to double ship this month. So, in total, we've got 11 books to discuss for this go-around. Um, for, you know, cover date February 2020, ship date December 2019. And that's, uh, that's still about 44 bucks American on uh, just X-Books for a single month. Which is something I'll, for better or for worse, uh, probably be uh, keeping in the back of my mind as we work our way through them. Uh, that is notable for being ten dollars cheaper. We're down ten bucks from month one. Ten, uh, ten month one, we spent fifty-four dollars USD because we had those five-dollar books as well. Anyway, let's get right into X-Men Volume Five, Number Three. Of course, it had a February 2020 cover date, like well, the next ten books will. The story's called Horticulture, written by Jonathan Hickman with pencils by Lionel Francis Yu, inks by Jerry Allen Gillen and Lionel Yu, colors by Sonny Goh and Rain Barreto, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, edits Beast Sawite Sobolski, $3.99, went on sale December 4th, 2019. Now we open in the Savage Land. And it's almost as though Hickman has made it like his personal challenge to make most of his stories take place in locations that I just can't stand <laughs> in, in hopes that maybe he'll be able to get me to come around. Um, now, the Savage Land isn't far removed from places like, you know, Deep Space and the far-flung future on my list of places in the Marvel Universe I couldn't give a rat's ass about. It makes me wonder what might be next. Maybe it'll be the Morlock Tunnels because I love that place. Anywho, we're here. And we see some young mutants rounding up some Krakoan fruit and flora. We see Pixie and Anol. Suddenly, a portal cracks open and a quartet of Stormtrooper-looking characters stomp on out. They approach the young mutants before blasting them with... Well, some sort of, like, crystalline goop. Uh, they're here because they love the S-word out of flowers. And uh, the S-word gimmick is uh, going to get pretty old pretty fast. Unless, of course, maybe we remove the hyphen, which changes S-word to just the word sword. Uh-oh. Nah, I'm just kidding. It probably doesn't mean anything. Let's meet our cast. We've got the White Queen, we've got Cyclops, Magneto, Marvel Girl, and the Black King, Sebastian Shaw. Who wants, pay who wants credits? Because we got pages of them, man. Uh, I think we're at a point now where we could probably fill two complete issues with nothing but these credit pages. And I probably shouldn't put that thought out in the universe because Marvel would probably release it as like a convention special, even though we ain't doing conventions right now. Anyway, we resume comics in Krakoa, and we're at an emergency meeting of the Quiet Council. Now, you might be wondering, are they here to talk about the attack on Krakoa? Are they here to talk, you know, to deal with the fallout of the assassination of Charles Xavier? 
Well, we'll find out soon enough. But first, Jean and Emma need a page and a half to be catty toward one another. Uh, it's worth noting, when Cyclops enters the scene, he comes up behind Jean and like places his hands on her arms in a very like concerned boyfriend sort of way. And it makes me want to want to ask you, you know, since I am X-lapsed, were there bits in the pre-Hoxpox uncanny run that had Scott and Jean, like, reconciling or officially together, or or am I just learning all of this along with everyone else at this point? I, I really don't know. Anyway, the Quiet Council takes their seats. Empty chairs include Xavier's and the Red Throne of the Hellfire Club, so perhaps Kitty's just away, or this takes place before the, prior, the, the coronation. Uh, Emma complains here that she has a splitting headache. And this takes us to an info page which discusses the fact that Krakoa is screaming. We learn that a Krakoan gate has been forcibly closed, and that's the one in the Savage Land. And this has thrown the island itself into a bit of disarray. Wildlife on the island is becoming aggressive, the island's overall mass is getting smaller incrementally, and all telepathic island dwellers are reporting increased levels of psychic assault and consumption. Because if we remember, Krakoa feeds off psychic energy, so it looks like it's pulling off quite the binge, and that's likely the cause of Ms. Frost's headache. Now, back in the Savage Land, our stormtroopers unmask, revealing themselves to be, well, four old biddies. Uh, and one of them is clearly modeled on Estelle Getty. I mean, it's, it's Sophia Petrillo, 100%. Uh, we get some jokes, I think they're jokes, about how one of them is hard of hearing and then mishears a lot of what everyone else is saying. So, oh, the hilarity. Um, and Estelle is the one who, uh, rather than cursing, says things like S-word, B-word, and D-word. Uh, this joke, if it is a joke, uh, plays itself out inside of one speech balloon. But it'll stick with us for the rest of the issue, whether we like it or not. Worse yet, it seems this manner of speaking is contagious to all of her teammates. Now, with the young mutants on ice, our group of grandmas decide it's time to start picking flowers. We rejoin Cyclops, who's being accompanied by the white and black royalty from the Hellfire Club, and uh, we see them arriving in the Australian Outback via a Krakoan gateway. You see, since the Savage Land Gate is jammed, they're going to need another way. Emma and Shaw are a bit incredulous, and they don't get why Cyclops has brought them here. Uh, as luck would have it, our old friend Gateway just happens to be hanging out right outside the Outback Krakoan Gate, swinging his little sling over his head, which, uh... Kind of begs the question, didn't we just see Gateway? It was just a couple episodes ago, Marauders number two. Uh, I mean, Gateway, I'm going to assume, was summoned by Emma Frost to zap her team from Taiwan to London. Did Hickman not read that? Did, did I imagine it? Or does this story maybe come before that? I guess it really doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> we're, we're just eating up time here. Um, in moments, our trio arrives in the Savage Land, where they see the Golden Girls picking flowers. They introduce themselves as Horticulture, which it's Horde, like the Horde that's invading Earth in Strike Force Moratory, and Culture. I admit that's a pretty clever name. Yeah, clearly, it's a play off of Horticulture. Um, Shaw mishears it as Whore Culture, which is uh, probably something in a whole nother magazine. Now, one of the old ladies takes one look at Emma Frost and uh, decides to assert that she probably has some sort of vaginal issue. She is a uh, mouth gaped, and uh, Cyclops looks away. Sure, stifles a laugh, and I'm guessing they probably both know the sting of that special shampoo. After closing her gaped maw, Emma tries a psychic scan, but is unable to get a read on any of the old broads. Sebastian Shaw decides he'll take the lead here and attempts to sweet talk the octogenarians. 
And so he talks a lot. Uh, I think he mentions here that he's been with many women and men. Uh, I don't know if that's new information or not. Not that it really matters. Um, all this sweet talk gets him is zapped in the face with that crystalline goop. Uh, and the uh, old lady stomp him into the ground a little bit. After watching for perhaps a few seconds too long, Cyclops lets loose an optic blast to knock the Horticulturans off of shore. One of them claims that the blast caused her to... <sighs> break a hip. And so, Boy Scout Cyclops runs over to attend to her. Any, any, anybody want to guess what happens next? Anybody? Oh, boy. Oh, she's playing possum, and Cyclops gets a face full of the goop. Frost has finally had enough and demands that the old ladies share their secret origin story with them. For whatever reason, this works, and one of the old broads starts spilling it. Now, it turns out that the mutants and Krakoa are spoiling Horticulture's plans. They are, get this... Radical botanists. Okay, this this sort of falls under one of my main complaints about comedy and comic books. I, it was just last episode we talked a little bit about the Hox Pox Docs moments that made us laugh, right? I get the feeling we're supposed to be like busting a gut here, hearing a radical botanist, and like rushing off to our social media pages to edit our bios and profiles to include this wacky descriptor into our uh, into our profiles. I feel like, this is a complaint I've made about several comics in the past, um, anytime you start a thought with, wouldn't it be funny if, dot dot dot, more often than not, that answer is going to be no. Funny is funny, this is not, but it really wants to be. Anyway, let's go back to their origin story. Now, they've worked for agrochemical and biotech companies for a combined two centuries, uh, these are companies whose primary goal was creating seedless slave plants. Now, I'm no scientist, but I think this is probably an allusion to the GMO debates, of which I really don't have a firm position. Um, I think I can see the good and the not-so-good, but engaging in actual debate over it falls way, way above my pay grade. So, uh, in the flashback, these not-yet-old ladies decided to kill their bosses and try to create their own horticulture seed. With it, they'll eventually be able to dictate and control the entire planet's food supply. And they'll be like the gatekeepers of it as well, deciding who eats, and conversely, who starves. They hope to return the world to its, quote, natural state. Naturally, the, co the coming of Krakoa threw a bit of a wrench into their plans, and so they dedicated themselves to hacking into what makes Krakoa tick. So they're here to collect samples with which they might make Krakoa work with them, or if not, they'll just pluck Krakoa out like a weed. The trio, you know, Shaw, Frost, and Cyclops, they, uh, look at this, they leave the old ladies behind and return to Krakoa for another emergency meeting of the Quiet Council. Frost reveals that they have a problem, and that's where we end it. But first, we get one final info page, and here we get the quick and dirty on horticulture. They are... Augusta Bromes, an agrochemist at 64 years old. Opal Vetiver, a bioengineer 68 years old. Lily Lamus, or Limus, a geneticist at 71 years old. And Edith Scutch, a botanical engineer 81 years old. So they, they really found some good old, old lady names, right? Uh, I think that's a... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. This is... Uh, now, this group of horticulture here, they're based out of a mobile lab called the Green Thumb, which is currently situated in Sedona, Arizona. And that's a place I've actually been to a number of times. And uh, 
The only notable thing to me is that it has a, uh, the McDonald's in Sedona has teal arches instead of yellow, or golden arches, I guess. It has teal arches to, to mix in with the, uh, with the, the decor up there. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's it. <laughs> that's the end of the issue. Uh, the next issue we'll be discussing is Marauders number three. But, uh, let's talk about this. I don't have a whole lot to say, because there really isn't much to say. Other than I was not a fan of this. I feel like, you know, this horticulture thing, I think that's a solid premise for a story. However, you know, playing our bad guys as comic relief doesn't do it any favors. It really pulls the oomph. It pulls me out of the story. It removes the oomph. Any urgency I might have felt was gone. Um, And I'm okay with goofy villains, but, you know, they have to have some substance. Not when they're only a joke, you know? Um... Think about the, you know, the Batroc complaints I made during Marauders, you know. I'm sure when Batroc was, uh, you know, first making his first appearances, he was a villain first and then a goof. Now it's like you lead with the goofiness. And uh, I just I just don't know. Um, these Golden Girls knockoffs, they just felt like a four-color meme. And maybe I'm just projecting. I do that a lot. Um, because I do take issue with low-effort content. But this feels like something that was meant to kick off a bunch of memes and not a whole lot more. And again, I, I am totally open to the possibilities I'm projecting. I just, when I see things that look extremely low effort and low hanging, <laughs> that's how I feel. Really not a whole lot to talk about here. My least favorite issue of X-Men so far. Um, the art was nice, but uh, yeah, not much to this. And it's... We're not going to get another issue of this for, I think, at least 12 episodes. So, I mean, <laughs> I guess it's not that urgent, right? I don't know that we'll be getting references to uh, horticulture and the other Dawn of X books here, but we'll see. But, yeah, this was, uh, yeah, this wasn't great. <laughs> I agree, disagree, definitely let me know. I, I would love to hear, but... uh Speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag here. Uh, we got a few letters to, to uh, get through here. We got uh, two from Damien, then we got a couple more as well. First one from Damien is discussing Excalibur number two. He says, This episode, I mainly found myself laughing along at your reactions to my comments. My reactions sound much funnier in your hands. It's interesting to hear that you see Americans stereotyped as cowboys. I don't know if that's better than deciding an entire country is full of magic. I think that might be a wash, right? That's definitely something funny to think about. And it reminds me of, uh, you know, being in high school. And I had a few friends who were, like, very, very much into anime. And, I mean, uh, there's anime that I dig. There's anime that I love. And I'm also a huge fan of manga, so I'm not making fun of them for that. But they would talk about, like, making these pilgrimages to Japan because, in their mind, they assumed the entire country revolved around anime. Like, everything was anime. And uh, so it's it's a reminder that it's so easy to, like, distill cultures and countries down to some pretty specific bits and pieces if you really want to. It's uh, definitely uh, definitely something to to, to bat around the old brain. Uh, Back to Damien. He says, Apocalypse remains interesting. He's a really great character to bring into an X-team. And as he always thinks, he's the good guy. So from his point of view, he's not changed. And I agree, Apocalypse is definitely the strongest piece of the Excalibur puzzle. It's uh, really, out of that second issue, I don't know that I enjoyed anything but the Apocalypse scene. You know, I, I was he, he is a very, very well-written character at this point. 
Uh, Damien continues, at some point I will take your advice and work my way through your backlog. There's something great about how particular comics remind you of your own history. It's probably no surprise that different fans have different ideas of the characters based on when they discovered them. As they say, the golden age of comics is 12, and that was 1986 for him. Now, speaking of backlog and that golden age sweet spot of comics and pop culture hitting when you're around 12, uh, that's actually something we had a show about. Now, uh, the first episode of that was covering the year I turned 12. Uh, it's a show on the uh, in the archives called Real Comics History. And uh, the one that we... Our first episode is actually episode 2 because it was released out of order. But uh, uh, Real Comics History episode 2 was a show that was predicated on examining what was in comics when somebody was 12. In this case, me. I was 12 in 1992. So that's that's where we started, and uh, the first episode talks about things like, it was 1992, so we talked about the Executioner song in X-Men. We talked about the death of Superman. We talked about the launch of Image Comics. We talked about comic book trading cards. We talked about a whole bunch of fun stuff, Wizard Magazine. I That's a project that I really wanted to continue, because I feel very, very strongly that our perceptions and... Uh, just our view of comics is informed so much by by when we were that age or there or thereabouts. Um, I keep thinking about every character that I see now. It's it's hard to shake that first impression, you know, of when I was twelve and when I saw these characters. And uh, yeah, maybe one day down the line, I'll, I'll get back to that sort of a show. But uh, I I really enjoyed those episodes that we did, and we lost the premise of when I was 12, because, I mean, we could only do that once with me. Um, but we did talk m- about more years, and we tried to evoke similar sort of feelings towards those years. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that's a lot of fun to talk to people, and yet, like talking talking to Damien about when he was 12 in 1986, what was, what was going on then, right? What was, uh, we had, the, you know, the crisis just ended, so we, we were in the post-crisis, um, I, I think uh, Daredevil Born Again was around then. We had Dark Knight Returns. Watchmen, you know? I mean, 1986. I, I thought 1992 was a great year to be 12. 1986 might have been better. Ninja Turtles was hitting. I mean, that's... Yeah, that's that's a good year to be 12, I tell you what. Um, but thank you for that, and we'll get to uh, Damien's next message right here. This is regarding Marauders number 2. He says... You really don't like Batroc the Leaper, do you? I'm in that group that unironically loves lame villains. I'm not surprised Shaw employed, employed Batroc, as Shaw is also a lame villain. Hey, come on, come on, Shaw. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Now, the, the coolest thing about Shaw growing up is that he had a son named Shinobi. That was, <laughs> that was the coolest thing about Sebastian Shaw when I was uh, getting into comics. Uh, back to Damien, he says, Rereading along with you, I can see how Emma's behavior could come across as cruel. This is clearly a continuation of the storyline from the X-Men Black one-off, where they presented Emma and Shaw's past relationship as abusive, and Emma's reclaiming of the Hellfire Club as a victory. You should look it up as it's drawn by Chris Pachalo, who you clearly love. And, uh, that is the one X-Men Black issue I wasn't able to find when I was when I was just scooping these things up in a Black Friday sale last year, I found all the other ones, but I did not find the uh, the Emma Frost one. So I'll definitely have to keep an eye out for that. Uh, and yes, I love Chris Bocciolo. Uh I can't pronounce his name, but I love his work. And uh, 
and maybe I am pronouncing his name right, I've never met the gentleman, uh, one of my most treasured pieces of comics ephemera is something I found in a, uh, uh, one of my comic shops nearby has a back room where it's, he, he describes everything back there as just, you know, trash, you know, stuff. And, uh, he'll, uh, you know, he'll sometimes let me dig around back there because I am a, I'm a pack rat for one. And I also just have this fascination with ephemera. Um, and this piece of ephemera was the DC Comics Vertigo announcement brochure. It's just like a folded piece of paper that has Vertigo written on it. <laughs> and it, uh, it came out in late 1992 to announce the launch in, uh, I believe Vertigo launched cover dated January 1993. And uh, this brochure was signed by Chris Pachalo. So uh, that's one of my treasured pieces of ephemera that I have framed. It's not hung yet because... Hanging things on my wall is too big a commitment, but it is framed. <laughs> and it's waiting for a time where maybe my wife will come in and hang it up because I I can't commit. But uh, that is one of my most treasured pieces um, of discovered ephemera. I, I've got a lot of weird stuff. Um, maybe I'll go into deep detail on some of my fun ephemera another time. But uh, uh, back to uh, Damien, he says, You immediately picked up on the first Jewish error I was referencing. There's another one coming, which I think you'll also guess. I suppose it could be argued that Kitty is reacting to the death of her father figure and therefore breaking her faith, but the fact that Bishop on panel references tattooing as a mark he was given in a prison camp would imply that it was due to her Jewish identity being forgotten by the creative team. My understanding is that the Jewish taboo of tattooing is down to the use of tattoos in the Holocaust. So I would expect that Kitty Shone memorializing her relatives who died in the Holocaust back in Uncanny X-Men number 199 to not get a tattoo. It was the first on-panel emotional reaction to Xavier's death, though, which is interesting. And you know what? I'm an idiot because I didn't even put that reference together. Um, I, I, I probably I probably came across like a horse's ass. I didn't I didn't put two and two together there. Um and, I mean, we were, I mean, this is this is like anvil heavy here. Um, Bishop referencing, you know, that it wasn't his choice to get it, and all of Kitty's, uh, you know, relatives, uh, that's, that's heavy stuff there. And uh, that really puts a whole other um, layer on it. Um, very, you know, very, very heavy. Very, very heavy. Um, uh, Damien continues, I work retail and I've had stand-up comics practice on me because I'm a captive audience. So it turns out that despite my Excalibur key feedback, Britain and America are not that different. <laughs> and, oh man, it's almost as bad as getting like Christmas carolers at your door, right? <laughs> it's just, you're stuck standing there waiting for them to uh, finish singing at you. It's just like when you have these, uh, the stand, these wannabe stand-up comics who uh, are, are joking at you. Uh, like when I was repairing the windshield and like when you're, when you're at work as well, uh, I, I mean, you're, <laughs> I've only had carolers come once. Um, and it's like the most awkward thing in the world. It's, it's like almost akin to trespassing because it's that awkward. Uh, and I, and you won't find people who love Christmas more than I do. Maybe, I mean, everybody loves Christmas who, who is, you know, into Christmas, um, I was actually even considering a weekly, because I have Chris's on Infinite Earths, and every year I do blog posts that I call Christmas on Infinite Earths, and I was actually considering doing a weekly Christmas on Infinite Earths podcast uh, all year long, 
So every week, talking about a Christmas comic book. Every week throughout the year. So 115 degrees outside, ah, screw it, we're talking about Christmas again. So eh, maybe I will. You never know. Uh, back to Damien, he says, They're heavily leaning into Pyro acting recklessly with the tattoo. I do like the idea that realizing that he was only resurrected because no one cared if it went wrong would affect him, but he's almost cartoonish. And that was my feeling, too. Um, it was very extreme, um, very unsubtle, very cartoonish. Uh, and Damien uh, continues, as you say, it's no surprise when Kitty becomes the Red Queen. There are surprises to come. I was particularly excited by the choice of the White Knight. And I'm looking forward to that. I, I wonder if it'll be another Frost. I think... I might be misremembering, but I thought there was another Frost in, like, like the Jay Farber era Generation X. Um, so after Larry Hammett and the Pookas and crap. Um, probably like around issue 50-something. I think we met another Frost there. I wonder if it'll be, uh, if it'll be them. Um, he wraps up with looking forward to your next episode, and uh, I'm looking forward to your next email, your next message. Thank you so much, uh, for uh, as always, for reaching out. Uh, I always enjoy uh, getting your messages and uh, and uh, responding to them. Uh, next, we got Dallas Gibson. He says, After Hoxpox, when I saw the characters in Fallen Angels, I immediately thought this book would center around resurrection. Psylocke with her identity history, I'm guessing a time-displaced cable, and Laura a clone. Will Professor X be playing Frankenstein? What nefarious and questionable ways will the resurrection process be implemented? Boy, I was way off. <laughs> So I went with what I was given, and at least it was only six issues. <laughs> Great job, as always. <laughs> Thank you, Dallas. I, I didn't know what to think when I saw Fallen Angels, especially with the uh, with the cover showing the cover, of the first issue showing us our our you know cast. I was not sure what to expect. Um, I knew I had a feeling it wasn't going to be like the '80s version, <laughs> which. Well, on the topic of the 80s version, I am talking to some people about doing the uh, Books Club on Fallen Angels. Um, should know more about that in the next few episodes. Uh, probably wouldn't be something that would actually, uh, you know, be, uh, like, uploaded until probably the end of October, beginning November, because I want everybody who wants to be a part of it to be able to be a part of it. But uh, we're ironing out details right now to see if we can get something rolling on that, uh, we usually work, uh, we usually collaborate in Google Docs, so if anybody's interested in talking about that 80s series uh, of, uh, of Fallen Angels, uh, reach out, let me know, we can, uh, we can get you access and we'll, uh, we'll have a good time sharing some thoughts, and uh, I will uh, put out an episode where, where we discuss it. So, you know, keep that in the back of your mind if, if that might be something interesting to you. But uh, thank you, Dallas, for, uh, for reaching out here, and uh, yes, at least this is only six issues, because... <laughs> <laughs> this, oof, uh, Fallen Angels number two was, uh, I don't want to say it wasn't good, but it wasn't good. Uh, finally, we have a message from our friend Al Sedano. He says, another issue read, an episode listened to, and only a few days after the last one instead of a week. Who knows, maybe I'll catch up with you sometime in the next year or three. Anyway, here are some thoughts on episode four, Powers of X number two. First of all, I was also a bit confused about the beginning of the issue. I also thought that everything X-related had been published before now had still happened. All the characters act like it, but this makes it look like the entire timeline has changed. I'm not sure which is which now, and I'm not sure how I'll feel about it either. 
I would have been much happier if the caption for this scene just read, quote, a few months ago. And uh, you hit the nail on the head with what I struggled with getting through Hoxpox. And kind of where I still continue to struggle if I allow myself. Now, I've heard, I've heard from folks who assumed that post-Hoxpox, or I guess at-Hoxpox, we were like at a, t- a tabula rasa sort of reboot. You know, everything is brand new. I've talked to other people where everything is the same as it ever was. I've also talked to some people who uh, stated that everything actually happened, but maybe not in the same moral lifestyle, life cycle. Right now, I'm just trying to accept that everything happened in this 10th moral life, just so I can, like, get over it. <laughs> I don't know if that's the case. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit more secure. You know, my footing is getting more firm, but I... I'd be lying if I uh, if I said I wasn't looking up to see if shoes were dropping every now and again. So uh, I'm trying. <laughs> Baby steps. Uh, back to Al. He says, Also, while I'm fine with the info pages, as I said before, I have to agree that two pages of credits is too much. Maybe for the, for the first issues, but not issue two onward. And you ain't seen nothing yet, my friend. They're coming. They're going to still be coming. I... I, while I haven't read, you know, the books that just came out this month, I have entered them into my Excel spreadsheet, which, you know, I, I do grab the credits, and I do, you know, I'll put the, the issue title and the writer and the artist, and uh, I'll grab the, you know, the cover date from the Indicia. So, yeah, even the books that I just got in my uh, in my DCBS package a couple weeks ago, it's two pages, two pages of credits. Uh, back to Al, he says, unlike you, I like the idea of the world mind. It sounds like they're taking the concept from the Nova series. Between that and the comparisons to the Kree Supreme Intelligence, it seems to me like Hickman is trying to tie the X-Men firmly into the Marvel Universe, instead of leaving them in their own little corner like a lot of writers tend to do. The thing about me is that I came in with the X-Men in their own corner, you know? And uh, we just talked about, you know... Everything being great when you're 12, you know, everything is the, at, at its finest and most pure when you're, you're when you're 12 years old, and uh, that's kind of how I like them. I like the X-Men being kind of on their own. That's not to say I don't like them crossing over into the Marvel universe, but I like it when the crossovers are special. You know, we we've had like the past couple of volumes of Uncanny, and I can't believe I'm saying the past couple of volumes of Uncanny have almost been. Avengers and S.H.I.E.L.D. guest-starring the X-Men. And uh, that's not the X-Men I want to read. If you want to have Captain America show up, make it special. If you want to have Maria Friggin' Hill of S.H.I.E.L.D. show up, make it special. Don't just make it the next issue. Um, I mean, more about the Avengers. I hated Wolverine joining the Avengers. I hated Beast going back to the Avengers. I hated Storm joining the Avengers. Um, I hated Storm joining the Fantastic Four. I didn't like young Cyclops on the Champions. Uh, that just didn't feel right to me. Um, I, I mean, we're we, we we would never the Scarlet Witch in the X Men. You know, she's a mutant or was a mutant. I don't know if she's back is to being a mutant, but uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't put her in the X Men. But we can but we can put all the X Men in the Avengers. It's I, I don't know. Like I said, I, I was the one guy at my comic shop to get the I'm with the X-Men pin when AVX hit, so maybe it's just my own sour grapes. Uh, back to Al's message. He says, Okay, the Legion of Superheroes is pointless? 
I'm normally okay with allowing others to be wrong, but now I have to find some reason to podcast about an issue of Legion and to have you on. Either to convert you or just torture you. I'm not sure which yet. <laughs> and uh, you're, uh, you're in, I, I, would, I will gladly take your invitation, for sure. Uh, for starters. And, uh, I mean, right now, I'm just living life how DC Comics trained me to live it. I didn't. I mean, I didn't just imagine a six-year span with no Legion books, right? I mean, DC has treated them like they don't matter for more or less my entire fandom career. You know, I remember Keith Giffen blowing up the Earth in an issue of Legion just to see if his editors noticed, and they didn't. <laughs> you know. Now that said, I'll be fair here. There are some issues of Legion that I read as a one-off for the Chris Zinefinetarz blog. And when they're character-based, I will concede that they can be very good. Um, I think I was at Legion 306 with Starman or Starboy on the cover. I, I thought that was a fine issue. I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, when they are character-based, I could be all about it. Uh, and actually, you know, on that subject, a few years ago, I was actually all set to put out a show uh, on this channel called Learn Me the Legion. And uh, the point of that was going to be, I was going to be teamed with a long-tenured fan of the Legion of Superheroes, and they would teach me what was so special about them. Because I, I really, I ha for some reason, I own about 400 issues of Legion of Superheroes. I think I've read about six of them. <laughs> I, I'm an idiot. I'm a pack rat. But uh, I want to know what's special about them. Because... You know, I have so many of them, I might as well enjoy them. I would love to know what's so special about the Legion. I would like to finally learn and get the Legion. So, unfortunately, that show fell through, though. If anyone listening would like to you know, learn me the Legion, uh, please reach out, because I'm I'm still down for that project. Uh, Al, if, if you're out there, let me know. Uh, but Al wraps up his message with That's all for now. On to episode 5 and Powers of X number 3. So, thank you so much for reaching out, Al. I'm I'm very happy that you're following along and that you're uh, that you're reaching out. I, I it's funny. I, I I'm in a weird position now where I'm less X lapsed than somebody, <laughs> which is weird. Um, so the things that Al's learning here, I get to see these from the other side now. You know, where I was coming into this making these like wild predictions, like maybe it's Mister Sinister under the Cerebro helmet. You know, these silly. Well, maybe not silly, but these sort of outlandish predictions, hot takes I was making. And the folks who were listening, who already knew the answers, were kind enough not to spoil me on it. And I know if Al's listening as he's reading, he's not getting to these episodes for a little while, so I don't have to worry about spoiling them. And, I mean, we, we've, we've kind of gone through the whole story as it is, so all he would have to do is listen, and it would be so spoiled. But it's so interesting to me to start getting the hot takes from someone who's just starting. Because, uh, not that I know so much more, but I get to compare his experience to my own. I, I think that's a lot of fun. So thank you for, uh, for reaching out, Al. That, that means a whole lot to me, that, uh, that you are following along and you're engaging. So, with that said, if anybody else would like to reach out and engage, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes and all the good stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com, all the XLAP stuff at XLAPS.Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. Audio archives are at ChrisAndReggie.Podbean.com. You can find this show, Moratory Mondays, which we got some bangers coming up. 
big time. Uh, I'm also in talks to maybe do a maze agency show from uh, Comico and uh, whatever other company they went to after Comico. Um, got some stuff cooking. Got some stuff cooking. Maybe Christmas on Infinite Earths. Well, maybe we'll kick that off too. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of a fool with my time and uh, and uh, eyes bigger than belly when it comes to projects. I, I, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about and a lot of things that I want to have reasons to read. Or reread, so we'll see how it goes. But I think that's where I'll leave it for today. Uh, once again, a huge thank you for everyone listening to this milestone twenty-fifth episode. Here's to uh, here's to uh, a bunch more, right? <laughs> but till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. And uh, welcome to what might be the short... Nah, I'm not even going to say it. Uh, this probably won't be the shortest episode of, uh, of X-Lapsed. Uh, I was wrong both times I said that, so I won't, I'll won't. i try not to say that again. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing Marauders number 3. This is, of course, episode 26. Uh, now, Marauders kind of fell down my charts last, uh, last time out here. The second issues, I put it closer to the bottom than I did the top, I believe, which... It was quite a precipitous drop, considering that I had it teeter-tottering in the number one or number two spot during the uh, the first issues. So this will be an interesting one to see if it uh, you know starts crawling back up or if it you know if it's still something I can't glom onto. But uh, without any further ado, let's hop right in. This is Marauders number three. Uh, had a February 2020 cover date. The story is called The Bishop in Black. Written by Jerry Duggan, we have uh, some new artists here. Pencils by Michelle Bandini, uh, inks by Bandini and Elisabetta D'Amico. Easy for me to say, uh, just like every other name, I guess. Uh, colors by Federico Blee, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X Hickman, edits uh, Robinson White Sobolski. 
Cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale December 4th, 2019. And we open in flashback land, though it isn't made abundantly clear at the outset. We're at Hellfire Bay, and we see the three colorful royal keeps. We have the red keep, you know, where the red throne. Uh, Black stone, where Sebastian hangs out. And the white palace, where we would assume Emma hangs out. And they all have pretty cool designs here. I like the... I like the look here of Hellfire Bay. We get a full page of it. It's kind of like a crescent with an island in the middle of it. And uh, on the island is Blackstone. And uh, you have the Red Keep and the White Palace on either end of the crescent, or either tip of the crescent, I should say. Really cool design. I I like it a lot. Uh, Here we meet our narrator, and he is Sebastian Shaw. Now, after waving to some youngins, he steps through a portal and arrives at his destination which uh, we'll see after our requisite double-page spread of creds and our roll call. So let's meet the folks who will make this issue. We got Sebastian Shaw. We got our old friend GB, Goldballs, Egg, uh, Professor X, Pyro, and Shinobi Shaw. Wasn't I just making jokes about him last episode? I thought I was making jokes about Shinobi last episode, but and, and here he is. He's like, uh, you know, one of those things you don't want to say in the mirror in a dark room. Uh, Turns out, when we get back to the comics here, Sebastian's destination is that really disgusting hatchery. And before him stands the Five. And of course, the Five is Hope Summers, Egg, Proteus, Tempest, Elixir, and we have Professor X watching everybody uh, do their thing here. So yeah, this is uh, very much a flashback. So this comes before X-Force number one. Now, Shaw wants some assurances about their next resurrection. He wants it to be, in his words, complete. Egg decides to point over to their latest resurrectee, Pyro, as proof of their abilities. So yes, this is a flashback. Pyro does not have the Punisher's skull emblazoned on his face just yet. And he's, you know, just a brand new pup. Now, Pyro, unfortunately, doesn't appear to be the best specimen at present. It looks like the first thing he did upon being reborn was... Get drunk. Well, this is an issue of a Marauders, so uh, somebody's got to get drunk, right? And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, we're not seeing much of Kitty this time. So somebody else is going to have to tip the bottle, and it'll be Pyro this time. So we see him wobbling around in a wheelchair, waving like a buffoon. He's very, very... I don't know I don't want to say that he's happy to be there, but he's, uh, he's happy to feel no pain, I'm guessing. Suddenly, a golden egg hatches, and from it plops... Well, hello there, Shinobi Shaw. He immediately recognizes his father, who tells him that a lot has changed in a very short period of time. Shinobi asks how he got here, to which Shaw pictures a skeleton with its own hand lodged in its skull lying in a casket. I am going to assume that this happened within the past couple of years because I don't remember a lick of it. I don't remember this happening. Um... Honestly, uh, I don't think, I I didn't think we'd seen much of Shinobi since, like, the upstart days. Uh, So, (laughs) anything on this side of the year 2000 is, uh, will be new to me for Shinobi, sure. Anyway, Shaw Sebastian says he'll tell Shaw Shinobi everything later on. From here, we jump to that culty scene where Storm, you know, usually stands before the throngs and has them chant mutant at her in her direction as they pump their fists. Uh, We don't actually see Storm, though. Uh, Despite her being on the cover, she's not in the damn book. Uh, It actually looks like a bald fella is asking for, like, the vocal proof of Shinobi being Shinobi and Shinobi being a mutant. 
Uh, Shinobi responds by saying, hey, I still want to kill my dad, and that is his proof. Pyro, who still seems quite out of it, raucously cheers for our boy. He is a Shaw and a mutant, damn it, and he's uh, very proud. From here, we follow the Shaws back to Blackstone, where the Elder shares a bit of the skinny on this new Krakoan landscape. Once inside, he sends Shinobi into the next room to change into his, uh, his new clothes. His very red duds. Hmm, okay, so that was his plan. He continues talking. Sebastian loves to talk. Uh, makes me very glad that I'm not voice acting this issue, and uh, you should be glad about that too. <laughs> now, he talks about the Hellfire Corporation and the treaties and the whole shebang, the black market, yada, 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 yada. Yada. The Shaws then step through another portal and arrive in Central Park. Once there, they're hassled, well, maybe not so much hassled, but they're attended to by the New York Police Department, who have the Central Park Krakoan Gate well guarded just to keep the looky-loos away. Once past the checkpoint, the Shaws are approached by some goofballs in ex-hoodies. Uh, the Shaws use a tandem offense to blow them away. Sebastian explains that many cults have risen of late. Some of them are pro-mutant, some are anti-mutant. The, the pair stop at a fancy eatery to continue their chat. Sebastian talks Frost and how she begged him to come back. Shinobi changes the subject, which I really can't blame him for. I'm sure Sebastian talks about Emma Frost a awful lot. Um, so Shinobi thinks out loud. He's, uh, he wonders whether or not he still wants to kill his father. To which, Sebastian smiles and asks if he thinks he even can. Shinobi says that's something he'll, you know, he'll continue to ponder on his flight to Tokyo. Well, kid, you don't need planes anymore. Because lickety-split, the Shaws emerge from another portal and arrive in Tokyo. Shinobi breaks away to attend to some business and tells his father that they'll revisit their discussion in a couple days. Now, this business Shinobi must attend to involves retrieving his sword. So, yes, another sword. He meets with an old master who's pretty surprised to see him. He assumes Shinobi went into hiding to get out of paying his debts. Either that or he was dead, but, I mean, clearly he's not dead. He's here. He's alive. Uh, from here, an info page from the X-Desk. This page is the uh, first bit of the issue that isn't squarely framed in Flashback Land. Uh, this one isn't all that interesting at at, as the first, um, but it does include a second text-only page, which is a transcription of a text message between Kitty and Bishop. In it, she asks him to be her red bishop. He turns it down. At the end of the thread, though, Bishop reminds Kitty to, dis to destroy her unsecured burner phone and that they're going to need new ones for T, who or whatever T might be. We rejoin comics content, and we are in the present. Shinobi returns from Japan, and he and Sebastian try to move on from their past conflicts. The Elder Shaw says he just witnessed Xavier and Apocalypse shaking hands, which says to him that anything is possible. He also tells his son that uh, their, quote, red ambition didn't quite pay off. Uh, but he still has a, he's still got an accolade that he can give his son. It involves the color black, naturally. Though, he does caution Shinobi not to discard his red suit just yet, as, you know, anything, anything can happen. Sebastian then takes Shinobi out to the bay to show him his rig. It's the, uh, the Black Bishop's ship. Together, they will bleed the humans dry with their miracle drug trade. Now, before we close out, Shinobi asks if Sebastian knows how he died. The Elder confirms that he does, 
and we see a scene of Shinobi with his own hand phased through his own head. Which, again, I, I don't remember. So I'm going to assume this was a... Probably a very recent thing. Um, probably post-Blue and Gold. You know, X-Men Blue, X-Men Gold. Probably Maybe in that vol- those volumes. Um, now we wrap up the issue with Sebastian telling Shinobi that it was the Red and White Queens that conspired to kill him. So he's uh, he's building allies and making enemies here. Our, our blurb for the next issue of Marauders says that we're going to meet the Red Bishop. Whether or not that's actually Bishop, I guess we'll find out. But our next episode will be discussing Excalibur number three. But how about we talk about this? Let's uh, let's gather our thoughts here and see what we thought of Marauders number three. I guess I can start by saying. And we're back. <laughs> you know, uh, after not really caring for the second issue, I, w- I very much enjoyed this one. Um, I'll concede that it was quite odd that we didn't even like get a visual on Call Me Kate. All we got was her text messages. Uh, but with how annoying I found her the last time around, I can't say that I missed her all that much. Um, and I mean, we still had Pyro kicking around being the drunken goof this time anyway, so yeah. Uh, I mentioned last episode um, when we discussed uh, X-Men number three that uh, the coolest thing about Sebastian Shaw to me growing up was the fact that he had a son named Shinobi. I don't quite remember Shinobi being such a... I don't know, like a a weak ineffectual (laughs) as he's being portrayed here. Uh, Though, in fairness, much of my Shinobi Shaw references informed by the very early 1990s. So... Um, Question for the uh, for the for the folks here: H- Has he been kicking around the X universe of late? Um, I I could have sworn like he did the upstarts thing back in like '91, and then just kind of went away. I mean, I know, I know there was an issue of Volume Two, probably in the '30s, where Archangel and Psylocke went to a Hellfire Club party. He might have been there, but I don't remember. I don't remember much more. Um, I remember thinking he was a pretty cool character for the few times I actually recall seeing him. Uh, though, <laughs> when I, every time I saw him, I wasn't sure if it was him or that Matsu Tsuriaba, who was uh, screwing with Wolverine at the time. They had the they all had the same haircut. Um, I think the thing about Shinobi that I liked the most was probably the you know the trappings of the upstarts as a concept. Um, I really feel as though they could have done so much more with the upstarts. If you think about it, I mean, it's such a potentially rich concept. You got, like, a group of rich kids and misfits hunting mutants for points. You know, they're actually killing mutants to, to gain points and beat each other. Imagine if they actually let them kill a couple of notables, you know? Um, I'm trying to think of who they actually killed that might have stuck. And, uh, of course, bef- you know, pre-resurrection. I mean, did Beef ever come back? The Hellion Beef? <laughs> I know they killed him. I know Trevor Fitzroy killed him. Uh, I know they killed Taro, but she came back. Um, they did. They they they. You know they were pretty pretty well jobbed out. Um, I, I I know back then. You know when they launched. You know the revolution. The uh, what what are they the mutant genesis in 1991? They brought John Byrne back. You know he re- he returned to do some scripting for the flagship books. He had Uncanny and Volume Two. He stuck around for like a month or two. But uh, at that point, his primary objective, he, uh, he had an interview in Wizard Magazine. He said that he wanted to have another mutant massacre. Because in his words, get this, he felt that a couple of dozen mutants in the Marvel Universe were too many. So, uh, 
just you wait, pal. Uh, you know, the upstarts, um, I don't know if folks remember Marvel. If anybody remembers Marvel and uh, isn't cringing right now, uh, Marvel was something that was written by Bill Jemis. It was part of the uh, You Decide initiative, where uh, Peter David, um, Joe Quesada, and uh, Bill Jemis, the president of Marvel at the time, or whatever that whatever the hell his actual job was, they had a contest where they wanted to outsell each other in in you know in in the sales charts. You know, uh, Peter David's whole gimmick was he was going to write a good story. Bill Jemis was just going to be eye-poppingly insane, and Joe Quesada was going to launch another Ultimate book. And uh, the book that Jemis put out was called Marvel. And it was basically his soapbox and sounding board to bitch and complain about everybody he didn't like, which was a lot of people, it turned out. What I'm trying to get at here is the final issue of Marvel was issue 7, and in it, they announced that they were bringing back the concept of epic comics. You know, the old creator-owned line of, of Marvel... Uh, the creator-owned line through Marvel back in the 80s. You had, like, you know, ElfQuest, Grew the Wanderer, um, I think Alien Legion. You had a whole bunch of stuff. A whole bunch of... Uh, the Boz Chronicles. A bunch of interesting stuff. But uh, they were going to bring it back. Uh, this is probably right around the turn of the century. And in this uh, th- this seventh issue of Marvel is basically, I mean, it's not basically, it, it exactly is just what you need to do to pitch for epic comics. There was no comic story in this. It was all, this is what you need to do if you want to have, you know, a book uh, for Marvel's new epic line, which lasted like three issues. But uh, I remember really getting this, uh, this like wild hair to do an upstart story. I wanted to pitch an, ups- an upstart story, but, uh, uh, you know, I, how are you going to do that, though? You, you need to kill some people. If you, you, know, you need to kill some mutants if you're going to uh, launch that and have it actually mean something. But uh, I, I just thought it would be the coolest thing to have an upstarts book. Don't even call it upstarts. Make that, like, the big reveal at the end, you know, in the vein of Thunderbolts, you know. Just have, have like a group of uh, nobodies or misfits just follow around some B-list mutant, and at the end of the first issue, they kill it, and then they tally their points, and it's like, oh boy, the upstarts are back. But I just love the idea. I love the idea. I wish they did more with it. I'd love to see it again. I would love to see it back. Speaking of back, let's get back to this issue before I uh, <laughs> keep going. Um, I appreciated Sebastian eyeing the Red Throne for his son. And I figure that's kind of multi-layered. You know, we could we could look at that in a number of different ways here. Uh, first of all, and probably most obvious, Shinobi could potentially be an ally. You know, to outnumber Frost, or at the very least have a little bit more veto power if such a thing exists in Hellfire world. Uh, second, I mean, we see the way that Shinobi died and how that seems to have really gotten under Sebastian's skin. No pun intended. Uh, perhaps this would be like a make-good sort of a thing for the Shaws, you know? They can, they can work together and put the past behind them. Whatever the case, it made sense to me. And it made for a pretty good read. It made for a really good read. I enjoyed it. Uh, Pyro is a tipsy newborn. Well, like I said before, it wouldn't be an issue of Marauders unless someone's getting a little buzzed, right? Um, one more time, I hate to say it, but I kind of see the lack of Kitty in this issue as a pro rather than a con. I, I don't know if I'm in the minority. I assume... I assume I'm in the minority, but at this moment, 
I really can't stand her. Uh, hopefully, I'll come around to her sooner than later. Um, maybe we just need to, uh, you know, knock some of the uh, knock some of my rust off before I can uh, fully get get, you know, get into this character and this new take on her. Now, from the final blurb in the book, it looks as though we're going to be doing a little bit more team building next issue. We're going to be introducing the Red Bishop, and that, that's totally fine with me. I am a complete sucker for world building and uh, you know getting pieces into place. So. Yeah, I can go on that ride. That's a, that's a good thing for me. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Uh, this was definitely, to me, a much stronger issue than last. Um, mostly because I wasn't, you know, cringing the entire time. And just was really, really annoyed. But uh, looking forward to the next issue. I'm happy that this is uh, back on my, on my good side. Or I'm back on its good side. I don't know. But uh, before we... Uh, before we uh, head off for the day, I'll just uh, do one piece of uh, feedback here. This is uh, from Damien, and he's talking about New Mutants number two. He says, I'm continuing to love the podcast. Thanks again for the feedback. I love hearing the stories of people's fandom. I don't think the attempt to own firsts is a particularly Wizard-era thing. I know my early back-issue purchases were all about getting those firsts. My first one my first one was tracking down Uncanny X-Men number 185, which features Storm losing her powers. I sought that issue out because of the footnotes in Uncanny, um, Uncanny X-Men number 220. I spent two pounds on that issue at that point, where new comics were 50p. My second one was, appropriately, Marvel graphic novel number four, which featured the New Mutants. And, uh, yes, that's some of my very favorite parts of um, being part... As, as much as a vestigial limb as I am to the uh, po- comics podcasting community, I, I still think of myself as sort of kind of a part of it. But uh, some of my favorite parts of interacting with folks is learning, you know, their secret origins, you know, their comic secret origins and uh, finding out what what books resonated most to them, what jumped off, what jumped off the racks to them. Uh, what was their thought process in, you know, what, what, why did they pick certain things to collect? And I love those stories, and that's a, that's a lot of what I talk about on, uh, on, on various other programs on this, uh, on this channel. Um, and I'm trying to think about my first, like, you know, back issue, back issues. You know, not like just stuff that was a couple months old that I missed out on, but like things that were more than a few years old. You know, what things I really wanted to track down. And, uh, and, and the, what I'm thinking here, I mean, outside of things like ElfQuest, which I started far, far late, you know, I started collecting the Marvel Epic run of ElfQuest in probably 1989, 1990, which was, you know, a few years after it was over. So those were old. But for superheroes, I'm thinking that my first. You know, back issue, back issues were probably the earliest issues of X Factor, uh, mostly because uh, I was shocked when I realized that X Factor was like on issue number eighty when I started reading it. I assumed that it was a brand new book, like X Force and X Men Volume Two. I thought it was going to be like issue, you know, twelve, but it was issue like eighty one. I was like, where? What was this all about? And then, you know, I did a little bit of uh, research, and, and research when in 1992 is basically flipping through the back issue bin uh, at all the books you can't afford just to see what ha- what the other covers looked like, right? And uh, I decided that X Factor was going to be like the book I collected because um, it was cheap. It For whatever reason, 
I mean, I could look at an issue. Um, I, I know the reasons, but uh, it was interesting to me that like a book that was only a couple months old in X-Force or X-Men Volume 2, when it goes in the back issue bin, it was going up from a dollar cover price to four bucks, five bucks in the bins. For whatever reason, X-Factor, if I went back to like X-Factor number two, it would be in the bin for two dollars. It's like, well, I could do that. You know, I, I that, that works for me. And I remember the first time I saw X-Factor number one. It was at a mall convention. And uh, a mall convention is basically exactly what it sounds like. I've talked about these on other shows. But, uh, like, the interior part of the mall, like where you do all your walking and stuff to go to from one store to the other, it would be loaded up with, you know, folding tables. And all the dealers and, and retailers from the the area would all come to this mall and they would sell their goods. And the first time I ever saw um, X-Factor number one was at a mall con. My my parents were doing food shopping at the Pathmark. And uh, I was... Uh, I was given, you know, five bucks and said, hey, you know, go play, you know, go walk around the, go walk around and buy some stuff. And I found X Factor number one for five dollars. And I thought I was, you know, the man, you know, buying X Factor number one because it was, you know, a number one from the 80s. And oh, man, it, I was I was hot stuff, you know, <laughs> I thought I was the coolest person. I, I, I bought the thing. I couldn't wait to go to school that the next the next Monday to tell my friends that I got X Factor number one. Oh man! And uh, I mean that that's just the book that I started collecting. And uh, I mean even like X Factor number five and number six, the the cameo and the first appearance of Apocalypse. Those were in the bins for two or three bucks. Nobody cared because it was X Factor. It wasn't, you know, Rob Leefield, man. It was, you know, a Simonson. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't so much matter to the uh, to the speculator market. So, those early issues of X Factor were the first ones I tracked down. And uh, the funny thing about that is, considering that X Factor was going to be the the series that I collected, the one that I wanted to get a full run of, it actually turned out being like the last, um, the last series that I got a full run of. And uh, it was X-Factor number 24, the one with Archangel on the cover. It's part of the Fall of the Mutants. I saw that in a 50-cent bin, and I didn't buy it because I thought I had it. And then I went home, and I looked on my Excel spreadsheet and realized I didn't have it. And I went back to the same store, drove about a half hour the next day, and it was gone. And uh, I could not track this issue down for the life of me. And uh, everywhere I saw it... It was like 20, 30, 50 bucks. And after seeing it for in a 50 cent bin, I just I couldn't let myself pay more than that for it. Um, it became like this like weird principled thing. And that's another thing I've talked about on other shows. I have very, very strict rules for collecting comics. I'm I'm kind of a I'm kind of a pain in the ass about it. But uh, I couldn't let myself pay, you know, big time folding money. For this issue, and uh, it would take me probably five or six years of uh, going anywhere I could that I thought they might have comics. If it was a record store, an antique store, anywhere where they had a, and it, it kills me to say it, a quote-unquote geek section. I hate that word, but I'll say it because people understand what it means. 
any store that had one of those sections I would go into in hopes that I would find X-Factor number 24, flea markets, anywhere. And I finally found it at a record store, and I paid $1 for it. <laughs> so I I made out okay, I think. But uh, yeah, those, uh, those stories of collecting and the stories of falling in love with certain um, franchises and runs and, and characters... Those are, those are the stories that keep me coming back. You know, that's, that's some of my very favorite stuff. But back to Damien's email. He says, Like you, I enjoyed this issue. And again, in case you forgot, we're talking about New Mutants number two. I, I know I went off on a very, very long tangent, but we, we are still talking about New Mutants number two. Uh, I love the group hug you focused on, but my favorite touch was that Rain stays in the hug for two panels more than the other New Mutants. It takes me right back to the fall of the mutants and Sam saying he would adopt Rain as a younger sister when she was distraught after Doug's death. Excellent point. I had to actually open up the book and look because I I wasn't paying quite as much attention to Rain, um, which is another interesting thing about uh, the generations of fandom because... I guess that might speak to which of these team members feel more like, quote-unquote, mine. I mean, we have this team of New Mutants that has some Generation X members on it, which I always pay more attention to them because those were my cohort. So I think that's a, that's pretty interesting. But I, I do, upon, you know, reflection and seeing that Rain remained, uh, how can you not love that? That's, that's just, that's perfect. Perfect stuff. Um... Back to Damien, he says, Hickman very cleverly centered the rela- on relationships so he could do all of his sci-fi stuff without losing us. Yeah, 100%. Because <laughs> if this was straight sci-fi or year 1000 stuff, uh, no, no, don't want that. Uh, Damien continues, I have to wax lyrical about Rod Reese again. He is a genuine artistic genius. I loved the entire issue. Yeah, Rod Reese is, he's ridiculous. Oh, he's wonderful. Just so great and such a such a perfect fit for this book. Love it, love it. Uh, Damien says, I felt bad hearing you say you were looking forward to reading issue three to see if you like Deathbird for once. I wonder if your reaction to issue three will reflect mine. <laughs> I, I guess we'll see pretty soon. I'm I'm very curious as to your reaction, and I'm also wondering if I need to get my umbrella out. I don't know if any shoes are going to drop next issue, so we'll we'll find out together. Um, your spoiler-free references to X of Swords referenced old Captain Britain. To be honest, most of what I saw in X of Swords used what Claremont built on top of Moore's foundations. Of all things, Fall of the Mutants was a key part of the jigsaw. I would agree that I've clearly missed stuff because of not reading Excalibur, but I was impressed that Hickman and Howard explained a lot of the story so far. This is something we don't see very often in modern Marvel and may just be because the pandemic delayed the story so they thought readers might have forgotten elements. The only thing that confused me was that Pepe Larraz drew Saturnine as identical to how he drew Emma Frost in Hoxpox. The fact that Saturnine exclusively wears white really didn't help. And yes, a few points there. Uh, first, Saturnine. Ugh. <laughs> Saturnine is another one of those characters that kind of bore me. But uh, I'm happy to hear that they do a little bit of a refresher here. Um, one of the things about um, House of X Dawn, House of X Powers of X that I said uh, as we were wrapping it up was that I felt it could be an evergreen uh, in the X-Men library. You know, something that people can come back to even after this era passes, even after the next three or four eras passed. 
Hoxpox will remain, I believe, as an evergreen. Dawn of X, maybe not so much. Uh, maybe X of Swords, if they are doing stuff where they are refreshing or jogging our memories a bit, perhaps that speaks to them looking at it as potentially an evergreen. Um, it might be too long to be an evergreen at like, you know, 300 parts, but I, I mean, baby steps. Maybe that's what they're trying to do. Um, or, of course, it could just be the pandemic. Um, I remember putting in a pre-order for some of the early uh, X of Swords stuff. Boy, very, very long time ago. And uh, everything got pushed, as you know, as everything did. But uh, I'm happy to hear that they do catch us up. Um, because uh, I'm dense. I'm very dense. So <laughs> if, they, if, if any help they give me, I will take. But uh, I am interested to see... Um, you know, fall of the mutants. I mean, I, I, that, I think that could be an interesting thing to uh, touch on and further instills that in this post hoxpox landscape that everything actually happened, which makes me happy. Uh, back to Damien. He says, I bet you're really enjoying rereading the Marvel UK Captain Britain. It's fascinating to see the development of Moore and Davis in those first stories. Moore moves from a Claremont copyist to a unique voice, and Davis goes from sketchy to accomplished in a very short period of time. I hope you do have time to produce something for us about these books. You're right to focus on the effectiveness of the Fury storyline. The creeping fear and dread the two Allens evoke still gets me every time I read it. Masterful. And yes, oh boy, um, yeah, the Fury is scary. I love it. I love it. And, um... I am putting something together. Uh, I've got a few things that I'm trying to cook up. I'm trying to do something of a new fall season for this channel. Um, you know, X-Lapsed isn't going anywhere. That'll still be as often as I can do it. Um, and actually, with this very episode here, um, for folks who were listening live or on the day it came out, uh, this episode hits on September 30th, which marks one complete calendar month of daily podcasting here at the channel. Uh, we started uh, with House of X number one on September 1st, so uh, it was a test. It was a personal test to see if I could do it, and I'm, I'm happy to say I could. And, and it's, uh, I don't know if it's something to be terribly proud of, but I'm happy I did it. <laughs> so, uh, But X-Lapsed will, uh, will definitely loom large here at the channel, but there are other projects in the, uh, in the works. Um, and as I mentioned, I believe, last episode, uh, I am working on putting together the Books Club with, uh, with some friends. And... Uh, Fallen Angels. I actually tracked it down in my uh, my guest bedroom, which looks like it kind of looks like a, like a like a Tetris board threw up. It's just boxes every which way, and <laughs> it's very very hard to navigate. Um, it's one of those things where I feel like I'm walking with like a, I'm walking on a minefield with those tennis racket shoes. You know, I'm always afraid I'm going to step on something. But I did manage to track down my run of Fallen Angels from the '80s. So we're going to put that together for a books club. Um, got a bunch more stuff in the works, and uh, I think it's going to be a pretty exciting time for the channel. Uh, a lot of a lot of fun stuff planned, and uh, we'll see how it goes. But. Uh, I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Um, I want to thank Damien for reaching out. I want to thank, every, thank everyone for listening and reaching out. And uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Um, I'm also reactivating, or maybe not reactivating, but I'm actually just starting to use again the Cosmic Treadmill 
uh, Twitter. That's Cosmic Tea Mill on Twitter, and that's basically going to be used for the archives. I'm trying to keep keep some of the old audio in circulation and uh, have it set to put out a few a few tweets a day to just you know maybe. Maybe meet some people that we didn't know. Maybe introduce some folks to some stuff we talked about. Uh, today, uh, I, that you decide, the Marvel You Decide stunt, I, I, I retweeted that there. So a lot of fun stuff that will be coming out through there. Um, you can find the show notes and all the stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. The Xlapsed page is xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. And, of course, the full audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Uh, one more huge thank you to everybody. Uh, thank you for helping me get through September 2020 every single day. Um, it really, really means a lot to me. It's hard to even... Put it into words, um, and I know that might sound sarcastic, but I assure you it's not. Uh, thank you all. It is most appreciated. It means the world to me. Um, but until next time, I will uh, talk to you all again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Uh, welcome to episode 27 of X-Lapsed, where we're going to be discussing one of the Betsy books. We're talking about Excalibur, volume 4, number 3. Now, this one had a February 2020 cover date, and uh, if you've been following along with this show, you know the Betsy books are usually at the bottom of the stack for me. So, uh, let's see if this one, uh, if this one maybe uh, changes its fortunes a bit, or if it, uh, you know, falls exactly where I might think it will. Uh, the issue is called Verse 3, Three Covenants, written by Teeny Howard, art by Marcus Toe, colors by Eric Arseniga, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman, the edits are Bisa White and Sobolski. Cover price $3.99 American. This went on sale December 4th, 2019. Looks like December 4th was a pretty, uh, pretty expensive day for ex-fans at the comic shop. We had a... I think all three books we've discussed over the past three episodes have been that same day. 
Anyway, let's get into it. We uh, get our usual three comic list pages out of the way first. So we'll start with our roll call. We've got Captain Britain. Of course, that's Betsy. We got Apocalypse. And, uh, I mean, they're still not referring to him by his new name on the roll call? Hmm. Uh, Jubilee, Gambit, Rogue, Shogo, Richter, Morgan Le Fay, Mariana Stern, and Brian Braddock. Then we get those couple of pages of credits. And then, believe it or not, comics. So we open at an apartment building where a man is watching the television news while trying to work up the gumption to take a single step outside. The news is talking about Krakoa, naturally. I mean, what else is going on? Uh, more specifically, however, the proximity of, of Krakoan gateways to schools. Because it would seem some mutants ain't wearing clothes when they emerge out the other side. Uh, we get... We get some man-on-the-street dialogue from someone who proclaims that, in America, we keep our clothes on in public. And uh, this feels kind of like it wants to be one of those like really played-out Merca jokes. Um, but it's, uh, it's kind of hard to argue with this attempted straw man if we're talking about mutants running around you know, stark raving naked outside of buildings full of children. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Or maybe I've just been beaten over the head by... Uh, by straw men in comics over the past decade or so. Uh, anywho, you want to meet who is the occupant of this apartment? Because uh, it's actually a fellow we already know. It's Julio Richter. And you see, it seems as though he's no longer in full control of his earth-shaking powers. You see, with every step he takes, the ground begins to rumble. So he laments his current lot in life as he receives numerous psychic invitations to Krakoa, but he just can't bring himself to go. He throws himself down on his bed, and which we can see is, like, mostly rubble. We get an info page, because we couldn't possibly get more than three pages of actual comics content in a row, and here we get a mutant message board. Oh boy, I wonder if we're on the dark web. I mean, that, that's where we hang out. Uh, no, it's actually just a regular site. Uh, it's actually mutantsunmuted.com, which, if you enter that into your favorite browser right now, it redirects to Marvel's Hoxpox page, so... I guess they, they, did the, uh, they did the extra work and they, they bought the domain. Now, this looks like a very sparse sort of message board, uh, kind of evocative of the old Usenet BBSs I used to spend many, many hours on back in the mid to late 90s. Um, anywho, we get a member here announcing that they're using a throwaway account, which feels more Reddity than Usenet-y, um, because back on Usenet, I mean, those were... If someone told you I'm using my real name, you'd probably faint. Um... Now, this person, using the throwaway, inquires about potential power surges since Krakoa did its thing. They don't get much of a response, though in fairness, they weren't all that specific about, uh, you know, as they should have been when describing the problem. Somebody writes back and says, hey, what, what kind of po powers do you have? And they don't want to say. Um, I'm assuming this is Richter's throwaway. I mean, there's really no reason to think it's anybody else. Next, we jump from the somewhat interesting to, well, Morgan Le Fay. We're back in Camelot, and she still can't seem to purge the scrying pool of the Krakoan weeds. You see, every time it's clean, they just keep coming back. Morgan asks a, uh, you know, a knight of some sort to fetch her mirror, and she does the, uh, the mirror, mirror thing in order to con make contact with the, uh, you know, the scariest of all PTA moms, the dread Mariana Stern. Uh, Stern assures LaFay that she can count on the coven Akaba. Uh, and it's all very boring. Uh, this conversation is thankfully interrupted when Morgan notices a great big dragon flying past her castle. 
Oh yeah, the dragon! I nearly forgot about our great big cliffhanger from last issue. So yeah, baby Shogo turned into a dragon in Otherworld. But despite the gravity of last issue's final panel, it really ain't no big thing. You see, Shogo's a baby. Fairies love babies. Otherworld's full of fairies. Ipso facto, Shogo could be whatever the hell he wants to be when he's in Otherworld. And from the looks of it, he wants to be a dragon. Now, Jubilee is nervous that Shogo might get hurt. Betsy assures her that Shogo will be fine. Gambit continues to whinge about leaving Comatose and Floral Rogue alo- alone with Apocalypse. And so, a page of bickering ensues. Then, Dragon Shogo offers to fly our trio to Camelot to try and rescue Brian Braddock. Speaking of Brian, we get a full page of him bound and chained within Camelot. Really not sure why he's being chained, since every word coming out of his mouth seems to be exactly the sort of thing that Morgan would like to hear. He's More or less, he's saying he wants to kill Betsy, and I think that's what uh, Morgan wants. Now, our trio of heroes arrive at Camelot and are immediately engaged in battle with a whole fleet of knights, and they're soon overwhelmed. And uh, by soon, I mean like less than a half dozen panels into the fight. Betsy asked Jubilee if Shogo could take part, considering, you know, he's a giant fire-breathing dragon. Uh, After some hemming and hawing, Jubilee relents, and Shogo returns to the fray and, uh, well, you know, fire-breathes. But then, Brian Braddock arrives, clad in black armor and chains. Betsy then delivers what uh, might be the line of the month. She says, Brian, my beautiful brother, what have they done to you? Okay. Uh, Now the Braddocks cross swords for a bit before Shogo intervenes with some more fire breathing. Our heroes hop onto the baby's back and beat a hasty retreat. Now Betsy doesn't want to leave, but at this juncture she doesn't have all that much of a choice. As they fly away, Morgan psychically speaks at her, toasting to their respective reigns as reluctant warrior queens. I think this was supposed to feel a bit more meaningful than it actually did. Though, in fairness, I'm having a hell of a time connecting with this story at all. How about an info page? Let's do an info page. Uh, Now, this is an Otherworld-themed document for MI-13, Black Air, and the like. Uh, What, no weird happenings organization? I think that's the only one they left out. It's pretty dull. Though, again, these are not concepts I've ever been able to really connect with uh, in my decades of reading the X-Books. I I don't care about MI-13 and and their, their ilk. Um... Now, this document lists some known Otherworld assets, and it's basically a who's who from the old-school Marvel UK and Excalibur. Uh, We got Brian, Betsy, and Jamie Braddock. We got Megan. We got Morgan Le Fay. We got Kitty Pryde. Courtney Ross, so the the Saturnining is beginning. We got Rachel Summers. We got Nightcrawler. We jump back to comics, and we're back at the lighthouse, and we see a about to step through a Krakoan portal. He arrives in a park, maybe Central Park, uh, they seem to go there a lot. Uh, he saunters through some crowded streets before arriving at an apartment building. And duh, it's Richter's. He invites Julio to Krakoa and assures him that there's nothing that Richter might break that he can't fix. And so Richter decides to come along. Which makes it all the more surprising when they step through the portal and arrive back in Cornwall, England. You see, Richter expected to, to be uh, chilling at Carousel, it seems, and he's a bit disappointed. He wants to go where the party's at, and it sure isn't here. Now, even more disappointing for all of us involved is the fact that upon arrival in Cornwall, they are greeted by MI-13's finest, Mr. Peter Wisdom. 
And that's where we end it. The next book we'll be covering is New Mutants number three. But how about we talk about what we just experienced here? Now, Betsy and Morgan had their little seem like a goodbye, kinda. And if this is truly the end of our time for with Morgan Le Fay for now, I think I'll give this book top honors for the number threes, the Dawn of X number threes. I'll put this at the top if we can get rid of Morgan for a bit. Can, can we, like, stuff her and Otherworld into a drawer for just a little while? Uh, I mean, these bits are just outrageously dull. They're almost aggressively boring. Um, so if she's gone, I think we can officially bury the hatchet with this little series here. We'll, 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 we'll go into it with a whole renewed vigor <laughs> with, uh, with, episode, with issue four, you know? Um, but where to begin with this issue? I suppose we could start with the cliffhanger from last issue. It, uh, well, it resolved itself pretty quickly, and I mean, the way it all worked out was fine enough, right? Pretty inoffensive and, uh, kind of silly in a way that I like seeing Otherworld. You know, I don't like seeing Otherworld as anything but silly. I mean, this, and this was so silly, it could have been a beat from an old Alan Davis issue or something, and that's not a bad thing. I'm totally cool with... Ramping up the wackiness in uh, in Otherworld Rather than, you know, Morgan Le Fay staring into a scrying pool that, that's the, that, could just, uh, that can go kick a cow The battle with the knights It ate up pages, I guess um, Really didn't do a whole lot for me uh, And it didn't feel all that final, you know I think... I think it was supposed to be like evocative of like a very climactic scene, and it just didn't come with any of that oomph. I mean, Betsy just cries over her beautiful brother, and uh, and they X their swords for a little bit, right? <laughs> that's that's what they do. Uh, now, as we become accustomed, this issue shined brightest while A was on panel. Though the Richter opener was really good, too. I like that. I remember reading somewhere that he was part of the team. Uh, I think he's even on the cover of Excalibur number one, so it's cool to finally see him within the pages. I, and to be honest, I'm interested in seeing where his story goes alongside uh, A. I am a bit less interested in hanging out with Pete Wisdom for the foreseeable future, though. Um, I feel like Wisdom, he's a character that can be interesting, you know? Um... It seems like only when a certain guy is writing him, because I think that he might be somewhat of an author insert for this certain guy, uh, this Warren Ellis, of course. Um, I think Pete Wisdom really worked best in the original his original run uh, throughout Excalibur back in it was probably the late '90s at this point. It feels like everyone since who has had Wisdom in their books have been trying to recapture. What Ellis was able to do with him And at this point, in my opinion, no one's been able to And, uh... I'm not all that confident that this next bit will change my mind uh, If uh, these past three issues are anything to go by Overall, though Warts and all uh, My complaining and all This is probably the strongest issue of Excalibur yet Though that isn't exactly setting the bar all that high Um... Scary but true, I think I might actually slot Excalibur number three above whatever the hell X-Men number three was all about If when we do our list at the end of the week. Um, I'm looking forward to what's to come in hopes that we might get an issue away from Otherworld because, I, you know, these are characters I enjoy. I enjoy most of this team, right? And uh, we just haven't been able to get them in the... Uh, 
in the context that I want to see them just yet. Uh, the other world stuff just kind of gets in the way to me. It's uh, it's the kind of scenery that I just get kind of stuck in and I get bored by. But uh, that said, it probably doesn't sound like I liked it all that much, but I actually liked it better than the previous two issues of Excalibur. So we're headed in the right direction. But uh, oh, wow, this this might actually be the shortest episode of X Laps yet because <laughs> we're through the book, um, and it's been quick. Uh, but before I let you go, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a uh, we got a double take from Damien today, and uh, the first one will be regarding X Force number two. And he says, "And we come to the first Dawn of X issue. I have read solely to follow along with X Lapsed." I know your biggest fear is an X-Men reboot, but reading this one, I wish we could reboot Beast. I know he's in character, but I want him to be the happy-go-lucky guy from the Avengers and early X-Factor. I agree 100%. Um, this might just be me projecting, but I feel like writers have been using Beast for at least the past decade or so in order to channel some some of their more like skeptical points of view. And I don't mean skeptical... In purely the religious sense um, I mean just He's kind of become Their I, I, I hate the, the Mary Sue Or whatever but He's just there to give their point of view I feel And uh, I think and, and, and it's smart to use Beast Because I think they realize That the readership respects Beast As a character And as such he's the best choice To be the one who who can question everything and who can um, voice dissent in a uh, in a logical sort of way. That said, while I agree that he's the best one to like funnel that sort of stuff through, he's been an absolute bore to read for as long as I can remember at this point. He's not fun. He's not silly. He's just kind of that pain in the ass know-it-all. Um, I think I mentioned the last time we discussed Beast and his portrayal, he's just the kind of guy I'd hate to be stuck in an elevator with at this point. He just seems like a really, really annoying guy. Um, I, I mean, even if we go back to, like, right after Dark Reign, where, you know, where they were going to make Marvel fun again with, like, the heroic age... They threw Beast into Secret Avengers, I think it was, back when they launched, like, 700 new Avengers books... He wasn't fun there either. <laughs> it wasn't fun. It wasn't interesting. It was just more of the same. Um, it's almost like he he might be beyond repair at this point. Uh, though again, again, I might be projecting here. I, he is a character that I, I've I've loved and I've enjoyed. Um, he, he's I own I own two Funko Pops, and uh, one of them is Beast. You know, I I really do enjoy the character when he's uh, when he's on point. You know. Now, uh, Damien continues. You're right that Kid Omega is the best thing in the issue, but this really isn't enough to make up for all the gory body horror. Yes, they are pretty liberal with the gore here, aren't they? Um, I can't say that I'm much of a fan of that myself. I mean, and this might just be me, my my weird addled mind here, but uh, I don't get the fascination with making everything look like meat. Like, I wonder if there's some sort of subconscious reaction to seeing sentient meat <laughs> that just makes us feel Ill, feel like ill at ease, or just plain ill. I, I'm reminded of growing up and seeing uh, Doom Patrol covers, like the Grant Morrison run of Doom Patrol, and, like, it felt like everything on the covers was, like, made out of, like, meat, or looked like meat. Uh, <laughs> again, maybe I'm just a weirdo. 
But that actually kept me from trying Doom Patrol until I was a little bit older because it was just I, it was just so ugly. Um, and I mean, you look at it now, or I look at it as a grown-up, and it's it's some very you know, it's some very impressive work. It's just not the kind of thing you want to like really you know feast your eyes on. Uh, back to Damien, he says, I was par- particularly surprised that Xavier hasn't been resurrected yet. I just presumed he'd be walking around again before the credits. And yeah, that was my main worry as well. I, I really thought they were going to pull the gotcha straight away just to further drive home the point that, you know, the stakes have changed, right? I mean, that's kind of the gimmick here. So I was, uh, I was pretty surprised myself. Uh, Damien continues, uh, I really don't recall his death being mentioned much in the books I kept reading. It's odd that only Kitty Pride has been shown reacting. Maybe I skimmed over those scenes. And yes, Kitty uh, reacted in Marauders number two before she, uh, you know, went and, and got tattooed. And uh, we saw Magneto kind of brooding for a little bit in Fallen Angels number one when he met with Psylocke. Um, other than that, I mean, the mutants are still dancing a carousel, right? <laughs> so it mustn't be all that big a deal. Uh, it, it is very, very strange that that this is not... It's not being reacted to. I mean, Black Tom feels guilty over it, but it doesn't seem like anybody else is all that bothered, which, I don't know. That that, uh, that makes me want to get my umbrella, you know, just to, to, get, to, to dodge them shoes. Uh, Damien continues, and he says, I suppose I need to go and read Fallen Angels number two now, the things I put myself through to keep up with X-Lapsed. Well, by now, you know... All about how I felt about uh, <laughs> about Fallen Angels number two. So consider this my belated apology. I am sorry. <laughs> now, while on that subject, how about we check in with Damien again and see how he felt about Fallen Angels number two, eh? He says, you're incredibly fair-minded about Fallen Angels number two. It's possibly the worst X-book I've ever read. Which, uh, I, I took that as a challenge. And I thought... Hmm. Thought to myself, self, let's find a worse X-book. And so I really racked my brain trying to think of some worse X-books. And uh, immediately my mind went to went to uh, the the X-Fan killer. You know, I, I've met I've met a lot of folks who were into the X-Men, really, really hardcore. And so many of them left at this one particular point. And uh, if you know the name I'm about to say, you could say it with me. Chuck Austin. Um, I, my mind immediately went to Chuck Austin. And uh, I think I enjoyed Chuck Austin more than I enjoyed this Fallen Angels. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying that. I mean, there were scenes in that Chuck Austin run where Archangel... Archangel had sex with Husk in the sky in front of her parents. I mean, that was a scene that happened. We had the Draco, or the Draco, however you say that, revealing Nightcrawler's father was a devil. I mean, there was a lot of garbage in there, but maybe that was like the car crash kind of comics, where it's like, you can't look away, and at least you get some enjoyment out of making fun of it. Where Fallen Angels is just something that is dull and takes itself very seriously. Um, so it's hard to even enjoy making fun of it. Um, so yeah, the Chuck Austin run, I think I'd slot that a little bit ahead of this. Uh, maybe the latter half of Mutant X is worse. Now Mutant X, (laughs) for folks who don't remember it, well, 
A, congratulations, and B, Mutant X was, uh, was what flew out, or it spun out of uh, X-Factor. The uh, first run of X-Factor, I think it was canceled with issue 147, 148, maybe 149. Um, and instead of getting, yeah, it was 149, because instead of getting 150, we got Mutant X number one. And in that, in the final issue of X-Factor, uh, it looked like Havoc died. But in reality, he was sent to this other unit, this other dimension, the Mutant X dimension here. And that's where you saw, like, Bloodstorm, the Vampire Storm, and a, like an amphibious beast. And, uh, I think it was a vampire angel, too. It was, or like, he, it was an angel with bat wings or something. It was... It had a good five or six issues, but by the end of it, the whole thing was about a war between the United States and Canada. The Beyonder showed up. The Beyonder turned out to be Madeline Pryor. And then Dracula showed up and bit, like, everybody turning them into vampires. Havoc got bit at least once. It was just a disaster. So maybe... Maybe Mutant X is worse. Maybe Mutant X is worse. Uh, and that was, uh, of course, written by Howard Mackey. So we can stick with Howard Mackey here. And we can look at The Brotherhood, which was uh, also written by Howard Mackey, but he was so tarnished by Mutant X that he couldn't even sign his name to it. So it was The Brotherhood was actually written by someone named X. X, the, 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 the secret writer, who was eventually revealed to be Howard Mackey to the surprise of nobody. That was pretty bad. That was pretty bad, but but again, is that something that is so bad that we can f- laugh at it, right? Um, then there's X-Men Unlimited number four. A book so bad that the writer of it went on Usenet to make fun of it under a, uh, under a, under a screen name, under an, an assumed name. Uh, Scott Lobdell wrote it. It was garbage. And he went on to Usenet under the name Kid York to make fun of it because it was that bad. I don't know. So maybe, if anybody out there can think of something worse than Fallen Angels, and and, and if you really enjoy Fallen Angels, I'm ju- I'm, I'm I'm sorry. I'm just making. I'm just having a good time. Uh, but I mean, even the X books that caused me to recently run for the hills, you know, X Men Blue, X Men Gold. I can't outright say they're bad, right? Uh, they they definitely weren't for me, but they weren't exactly what I'd consider to be bad. So uh, yeah, if anyone out there can think of anything worse than Fallen Angels, Fallen Angels number two in particular, reach out and let us know so we can, uh, <laughs> so we can, uh, you know, spread the word. Uh, back to Damien's message here. He, uh, he did his rankings from best to worst for the issue number twos. His number one was Marauders. Number two was New Mutants. Number three was X-Men. Four was X-Force. Five was Excalibur. And six was Fallen Angels. And, uh, we're not that different. Our marauders are out of uh, are out of order, but everything else seems to be in line. Uh, Damien continues, uh, or he wraps up with, uh, "So reading along with you has made me appreciate X Force a lot more, and we really don't agree on marauders. I'd put money on your top book changing for the number threes, which I'm guessing that is to say that I'm not going to enjoy our death burdening in New Mutants number three. <laughs> well, we'll find that out." Next episode, because that will be the topic that we'll be discussing. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I'll be able to get something out of it. Uh, <laughs> or maybe, just maybe, I'm setting my expectations so low right now that anything that happens will be good. You know, we'll just have to wait and see. But I think that's where we'll wrap it up today. 
If uh, you'd like to get a hold of me, a hold of the show, uh, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes and the good stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com and xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can find the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com where you can find thousands of hours of audio to fill thousands of hours of your time. Um, also, uh, I am, as mentioned, I'm using the Cosmic T-Mill Twitter account to, uh, to reshare the archives. So maybe open up to uh, a, new, a new audience. Uh, you know, let some folks who might have missed some of the older stuff know that it's out there. So uh, if you're not following there, maybe give it a follow. You might, uh, you might, find, a show that, uh, might, might find a show that interests you that you didn't know we had. Um, Facebook, find us at 90s X-Men. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. So before I uh, cut you all loose, just one more giant thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, This episode actually is the one-month anniversary of this show. The first episode hit on September 1st. This is October 1st, so made it a full month, 27 episodes. Not Not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. So thank you all for being with me on this journey. Thank you all for reaching out. Thank you all for, uh, for listening. And, uh, Till next time, I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya. This is Chris. Welcome to episode number 28 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I'm going to do my best not to uh, be hiccuping the entire show. Um, Growing up, my mother would say that if you woke up with hiccups, you would have them all day. And uh, I don't know if there's any empirical science to that, but uh, you might be able to imagine how my day has been (laughs) just by saying that. Uh, Today, we're going to be discussing New Mutants, volume four, number three. And uh, New Mutants was at, like, the tippity-top of my favorites uh, for the first couple of waves of the uh, Dawn of X books here, but I heard that this one might might be a little bit different. Um, I assumed that it would be all about the Shi'ar and Deathbird and Lalandras and all that. I think we're about to have a rug yanked out from under us. Uh, let's hop right into it.
As stated, this is New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 3, had a February 2020 cover date. The story's called To the Grave, written by Ed Brisson, or Brisson. Art by Flaviano. Colors by Carlos Lopez. Letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Designs Tom Muller. Head of X Hickman. Edits Biso White Sapolsky. Cover price $3.99 and went on sale December 11th, 2019. And as I just alluded to, we don't quite pick up where we left off last issue. In fact, we're not anywhere near Shi'ar space. Uh, Which uh, is usually something I'd consider to be a good thing, but uh, makes me wonder, just what are we in for here? So we're on Krakoa, and we're with Armor and Glob Herman, who are discussing how they felt upon finding out they were mutants. It almost seems mean for Armor to talk about how she felt. She says she feels like her life was over, or she initially felt that way. Considering, I mean, she still looks like a normal human being and not a uh, chewed-up piece of bubblegum with organs like Mr. Herman. Now we cut to them hanging out at Carousel, where, you know, nobody seems all that bothered that their leader was recently shot in the head. Uh, They are all dancing. And uh, while Armor laments the fact that not everyone who was summoned to Krakoa has taken up the invitation, Glob decides to break away and dances a little bit with Pixie. So, you ready for three comic-less pages? Let's do it. First, our roll call. We've got Armor, Glob, Sage, Boom Boom, and whatever a Maxime and Manon are. Then our double page spread of creds, and uh, it does find us with a whole new creative team than we're used to for New Mutants. And once comics return, we rejoin Armor, and she's hanging out with Sage at one of the monitor stations, or whatever they are. They're reconciling invites with arrivals, and they're doing so alphabetically by surname. You know, Bishop, Lucas is here. Blair, Allison is also here. Bohusk, Barnell, however, is not. Now, Barnell Bohusk is, of course, Beak from the Morrison run. He's the one who knocked up and married Angel. Not Warren Worthington. Angel Salvador, who totally wasn't created just to confuse us every time she was mentioned. Actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's exactly why they named her that, but... Let's move on. So, Beak and Angel never answered Professor Xavier's invite. And this troubles Armor for reasons. I don't really remember her being all that tight with Beak. But in fairness, it's probably been a dozen or so years since they might have occupied the same panel space, though, right? Anyway, Armor wants to investigate. Sage doesn't give a rat's ass what she does, so long as she leaves her alone. Now, we follow Armor back to the new X-Men house where she and Glob talk about Beak some more. We learn that he's living in Nebraska on a farm. Glob, he's not really into this. He's too distracted by thoughts of Pixie dancing in his head. Armor tells him just to ask her out already, before thinking she might have figured out why uh, why Bohusk and company chose to remain off-island. And so we stick with Armor for a bit. We follow her again. This time, she heads to the New Mutants' house. And she finds them... Well, not home, of course, because they're in space. I feel like more of the Krakoans ought to know this, right? None of them seem to. It's like, hey, where's Doug? Well, he's in space. Well, where's Doug? He's in space. We've heard this so many times. Anywho, Armor is looking for not Doug, but Sunspot. But she only finds Boom Boom, who is busy rifling through Sunspot's things. And I gotta say, 
aesthetically here, it's still so weird for me to see Boom Boom with long hair. I, I, I never would have recognized her if it wasn't clear, she wasn't clearly labeled as who she is. It just looks like a totally different character. Now, Armour shares the deets of her pending trip to Nebraska and reveals she was here to see about securing some Krakoan meds from Roberto. Tabitha says she'll go with them, but for whatever reason, she doesn't. She does, however, help Hisako score the medicine, though. From here, an info page, and this shows the uh, little cluster community of the young mutants, the uh, Academos Habitat, or the Sextant. It's kind of set up like Fraternity Row or something. Uh, we've got the Delta House, which is occupied by the members of Generation X, the Zeta House, which is occupied by the new X-Men, I'm guessing the Academy X version, uh, Beta House is uh, occupied by the Frost Academy, so I'm assuming Hellions, uh, the pod is where the five live. That's, you know, Hope, Elixir, uh, Tempest, uh, Proteus, and Egg. Life Death is the communal area, which sounds like a really cool place to hang out. The Sigma House is the Jean Grey school, of which I can't remember a damn soul. Um, the, maybe it's Brew. Is Brew one of them? Maybe it's him. Uh, Omega House is Redacted. We don't know who lives there. And Alpha House is the New Mutants. Uh, this is actually a pretty cool idea. I, I think this is actually an, a helpful info page. I enjoyed it. From here, we jump to two days later, and we rejoin Armor and Glob. They've secured those meds, and they're headed toward a portal. They're stopped by a pair of gray-skinned children, and this is Maxime and Manon, neither of whom I have the foggiest idea who they are. Apparently, they have the power of influence, and they assure Armor that they can get Beacon Angel to return with them to Krakoa. Armor decides to allow them to accompany them to Nebraska, however makes it clear that she doesn't want Beacon Angel coerced into coming back with them in any way. It has to be their decision. Bada-bing, bada-boom, our quartet arrives in Pilger, Nebraska, at the foot of a sprawling farm. They knock on the door, and, duh, it's Beacon Angel's place, of course. And they've got something like a half dozen kids, some with wings, some without. Um, it doesn't look like Angel's got her, like, really gross fly wings anymore, though. Um, or maybe they just fold up real tight. Anyway, it's a nice little reunion involving people I never realized actually cared about one another. Um, though, in fairness, Glob was in Zorn's special class with Beacon Angel, so there's that. Uh, armor wasn't even created at that point, but what are you going to do? Now, once all the tea kettles are settled, Beak reveals that they did, in fact, receive Xavier's invite, but chose to remain in Nebraska. Armor expresses that she understands, and uh, what's more, she has a pretty good idea why they stayed, and so she asks if she can see him. Next thing we know, we're in a room with Beak's folks. His father's in a bed strapped to all manner of machine. Oddly, his mother refers to her son as Beak, rather than Barnell. I mean, that's kind of weird, right? I don't know. Anywho, Mr. Bohusk is suffering with something called Taylor Ellis disease. And this is apparently a rare form of dementia. However, if you do one of those quoted Google searches for it, it only brings up this issue. So uh, that's pretty damn rare, isn't it? Uh, so, Armor injects Mr. B with the Krakoan cure-all and lickety-split, he's cured. From here, we jump to an info page, and it's more on Taylor Ellis disease, with the Latin name Munis Motricium Dementia. And uh, Munis Motricium means motor function. Uh, Googling for that doesn't bring up any results either. In fact, if you Google for that, it tries to correct it to Munis Matricium Dementia, 
which leads us to results showing pseudo-dementia. So I don't know if this is a real thing. Um, maybe it is. Maybe it's just that rare. Um, I couldn't find anything on Taylor Ellis either, who is apparently a uh, fantasy writer, who this was named after, or a sci-fi writer. Couldn't find anything, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I looked with quotes, <laughs> which is about as much as I can do. Uh, anyway, real or not, this sounds like one scary disease. A very high mortality rate. Not good stuff. So, Dad's cured. We rejoin our heroes later on as they have a coffee break and a chat. Armor tells Beak and Angel that their kids will love it on Krakoa, which causes Beak to peek out the window to see his kids surrounded by a bunch of folks. He asks Armor if uh, maybe she brought some others with them, but she didn't. We get a look outside, and we see the Bohusk brood being rounded up by some, like, really generic-looking hillbillies. I mean, these guys look like complete geeks. It's just... It ain't cool. Um, now, they're threatening to, you know, beat the freaks like you do. Uh, Angel freaks out and blames Armor for bringing them to her door. And so, Armor, Glob, and the Grey Kids head outside to face down the bad guys. Armor takes point as one of the Hicks launch a friggin' rocket at her. Uh, she's nailed, which causes her psionic armor to vanish. You see, this missile was of the power-dampening variety. And I feel like we're getting a whole lot of power-dampening hoodoo in these Dawn of X books. Is it just me? Or am I imagining this? But it seems like we're getting this often. Uh, the issue ends kind of out of nowhere here. Um, it doesn't really feel like a cliffhanger so much as it feels like they might have ran out of pages. Uh, the lead hillbilly, the one with the, uh, the most colorful <laughs> ensemble, he tells Armor that they're going to take it inside so they can negotiate. So I guess we're getting another issue of this. Yay? Eh? <laughs> yeah, that's New Mutants number three, and... Whew. Not what I was expecting. Um, next, we're going to be discussing X-Force number three, but uh, let's talk about this. Um, I would like to start our little talking time segment by taking this opportunity to uh, formally apologize to Deathbird. I was hoping, beyond hope, that I wouldn't have to see you today, but at this point I kind of wish I had. Deathbird, I am sorry for doubting you. It'll never ha- Okay, it'll probably happen again, just not today. Uh, I'm sorry, Deathbird. From honest and true, from the bottom of my heart. So what in the world was this? Um, this felt very much to me like a throwaway issue of uh, New X-Men. That is, you know, New X-Men colon Academy X. Even down to the more cartoony art. It felt so out of place when compared to, like, basically everything else we've been reading up to this point for the uh, Hox Pox docs, right? A real throwback, but throwing back to an era that, in my opinion, didn't really matter. Uh, a lot of page filler back in those days. Um, not, not great. Let's start with the good, though. Let's start with the good. The premise. The premise here, I gotta say, is, uh, is pretty neat. Um... You gotta figure it would stand to reason that there would uh, there would be some mutants out there who chose, for whatever reason, not to take Professor Xavier up on his invitation to Krakoa. Putting together a team of mutants that scout those characters out to find out why? Yeah, that could be interesting, I think. Um, 
I feel like having armor so focused on beak was a little bit weird and a little bit forced. Um, though, perhaps I am forgetting some key story where they became pen pals or best friends or people who traded their sack lunches in the Xavier cafeteria. I don't know. But uh, if we push the forced, forced nature of this event in particular aside, I really dig the, like the concept of uh, you know, just scouting the mutants and finding out why a particular character might have chose not to go to Krakoa. And I figure armor armor as a point-of-view character is as good as any. Um, she's relatable. She's fine. It's not a big deal. Um, let's talk Tabitha. Now, Tabitha ransacking Roberto's things was kind of odd. Um, I don't know if this was included as an attempted at comedy, or if we're going to be getting, like, a Tabitha's stealing stuff subplot... To be completely honest, I'm not sure which would be worse. Uh, because A, it wasn't funny. And B, I don't want to waste a whole issue on a New Mutants intervention with Boom Boom. That that doesn't sound fun in the slightest. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the attempts at comedy in the Hox Pox Docs books here. And uh, another swing and a miss. Um, not great. Um, let's talk about the cure. Now, this is a piece of the puzzle that makes me almost a little bit uncomfortable because it raises so many questions about the roles of superheroes in these comic book universes. Like, all those things we're not supposed to think about, to my mind, anyway. Um, Like, you know, if Superman or an X-Men could stop wars with a word, why don't they, right? If, if, If superheroes can cure diseases, why don't they? Here, we have heroes curing diseases which... I'm not quite sure how that makes me feel. Um, you know, my, my grandmother, she suffered with dementia for the better part of the last decade of her life. And I mean, I get fiction, and I try not to be precious when it comes to things like this, but I don't know, I think I'd be lying if I said it didn't get under my skin a little bit. It feels um, almost like a disservice. And uh, I don't know. And... And I, and again, I don't know if this, uh, if this, you know, Ellis disease is a real thing or not. Uh, maybe someone can let me know. But uh, what it led me to was a bit of a rabbit hole that reminded me why I chose psychology as my major in the first place. Um, because you have this pseudo dementia, and then you have a lot of like the power of positive thinking and the positive of ne- the power of negative thinking as well. And uh, that, to me, was a big catalyst in my choosing psychology as my major when I returned to school in 2011. I believe very strongly in, uh, in the power of cognitive thinking. It was just a, a cognitive psychology. Um, and how the way you frame things, the way you view things, has a... It has a larger impact than one might imagine. Um, you know, let's I talk about uh, my grandmother. You're not to get you know too personal on this show. I try to keep this one more material based, but it felt as though we all knew there was something going on. But it wasn't until we got the the diagnosis that acceptance came, and that's not acceptance from the family. That was acceptance by her, and. Uh, you know, when you accept something as being as being something that will change your life and that you can't fight against, that's kind of when you give up. 
and I don't know if this disease here was uh, was meant as a nod to that. Um, frankly, I don't know enough about it. My my uh, academic career kind of shifted from you know pure brain science to you know other realms of psychology in the course of a decade. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is a power of positive thinking sort of thing. I don't know if this is a an allusion to something we're supposed to be picking up on. Um, I don't know, but I, I do feel, you know, personally, I do feel like there is a lot of power in the way you frame the way you think of things. Um, it's, it's funny. I, uh, in, you know, 40 years on this planet, I have never gotten an IQ test. You know, I've refused. I've, I've had offers and, you know, you, you sometimes do the, uh, you know, you partner up in, in higher education and, uh, and you try to do the, uh, the profiles and stuff like that. And I've always refused to get my IQ tested because to me, that's something I don't think I should know. You know, I don't think I should know if, cause to me, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a good thing either way. Because if I find out what my IQ is and it tells me that I'm that I'm low, then I'm gonna feel like I have an excuse, and suddenly it's gonna be like a self fulfilling prophecy, and I'm going to devolve, or maybe not so much devolve, but I will underachieve. And on the you know conversely, if I find out my number is astronomically good, I'm gonna feel like I've been underachieving my entire life. <laughs> so it's just not a good thing, either way. But. That's, you know, a rabbit hole I wasn't expecting to go down. So that, that might be the best part of this issue, is that it caused me to do a little bit of uh, introspection and uh, reflection on on my uh, academic career. But don't know how I feel about it in the context of this book. I get that it's that's kind of the deal, you know? Uh, that's kind of... That's kind of the whole thing that Krakoa can offer. So we gotta take it, Right. Uh, as far as the story, um, sticking with the cure, I feel like the cure might have worked a little too fast. Like, it really is a miracle cure, right? Seeing how quickly it worked made me uh, want to, you know, run for my umbrella to, to dodge them fallen shoes. Uh, still, though, uh, solid, I guess, stuff here. Uh, at least it's building on the very premise of the Dawn of X era, so I can't really get mad at it, no matter how uncomfortable it might make me feel. Um, speaking of getting mad at things, let's, uh, let's go to the bad here. The Gang of Hillbillies. Come on. Haven't we seen this before? Like, way too many damn times? This is just so tired. And it feels to me like something that would eat up like eight pages in a random issue of X-Men Unlimited or something. Um, from character designs, if we can even call it that, to the context, it's just so played out. Um, not, not cool. And, and this might just be me projecting, or just uh, being the victim of past, you know, uh, things like this uh, in, in X-Men comics. I feel like it's supposed to, we're supposed to think it's a new thing, you know? Um, that reminds me of the first arc of the Joe Casey Uncanny X-Men run, where we were promised all these new things... And basically, we got like a bald dude with a flamethrower trying to react, reenact the uh, you know, the mutant massacre in London. 
it was just like this isn't this isn't new this isn't novel this isn't forward thinking this is just more of the same crap um then we have power dampening missiles come on isn't this like the fourth or fifth or sixth time that someone's been able to dampen a mutant power since we started this run I mean, is there, like, another black market out there that we don't know about that sells power-dampening dealies by the truckload? Just so played out. Uh, now, even even with all the good things that I mentioned in this issue, it made me think a little bit. It was nice seeing some of these characters. Um, it really doesn't make me look forward to the next issue. Um, and it's got to be the weakest outing for this title yet on, on every front. Uh, the art, I mean, the art's clean and solid, but certainly not up to the standards of Rod Reese. And as mentioned, maybe a little bit too evocative of like the manga light throwaway era of Academy X. That might just be me and that's fine. But, uh, like I said, it's clean, but it's just not what I wanted from this issue. Gotta say, if Fallen Angels wants to keep its bottom slot in my rankings, it's got its work cut out for it this week. <laughs> I really didn't enjoy this. Um, this hasn't been a great week uh, for uh, the X-Books here. Um, I mean, this is the this is the fourth one of the number threes that we're discussing, and outside of Marauders, we're not getting a whole lot good, uh, which is reminding me of so much of the feedback that I was getting early on in this little uh, X-lapsed endeavor where people were fawning over Hoxpox, as did I for a, a good portion of it, but warning me that the level of quality does not maintain through Dawn of X. Yeah, <laughs> I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that right now. I'm, I'm still optimistic and hopeful, but I can't say as though I enjoyed this so much. It certainly wasn't the first two issues of New Mutants. Um, yeah, <laughs> we'll just grin and bear it, and we'll keep going, I guess, right? Uh, speaking of feedback, let's get to a letter from Damien. And he's going to be discussing another book we talked about, another number three. This is X-Men number three. And, of course, X-Men number three, the entire premise was the Golden Girls were picking Krakoan flowers, right? The old ladies who... who uh, just weren't very funny. Uh, Damien says, I remember when this issue came out, it was a case of the entire X-Men fandom saying, quote, is this a joke? I genuinely think we were meant to laugh. It was so ham-fisted. Even the fact that he, he used old lady names from the wrong generation. They're from my grandmother's era, but they're in their 60s and 70s. Yeah. This was a... That was a toughie. Um... Uh, another swing and a miss when it comes to comedy. It just was not... It wasn't funny. <laughs> I don't know why I feel so bad saying that. Um, I, tr I, I, The thing about me is I have trouble criticizing things that I know I can't do. You know, art. Even if the art's not for me, even if the art is technically inferior to another artist, I still feel bad saying something like that because... It's not something that I'm any good at, so I feel like I have no right. Same with comedy. Um, I might say a funny thing on accident every once in a while, but comedy's difficult. And uh, sometimes when you see someone trying and failing, you, you, you feel bad. <laughs> and 
<laughs> I, I kind of did too. Um, it just felt so baity. The uh, the old ladies there. It felt like it really wanted to be a meme. It was very very baity of of perhaps an audience that doesn't exist. You know. Um, yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> this has been a weak week. Uh, <laughs> back to Damien. He says, talking of my era, because uh, we talked about you know when we were twelve. You know, we talked about uh, how comics and pop culture are great when you're 12, and Damien had shared that 1986 was the year he was 12. So we're going to touch on that here. He says, uh, talking of my era, you're right that the comics in 1986 are great, but I pretty much missed everything you mentioned. My first United U.S. comics were the Marvels with the 25th anniversary border, which were cover dated November 1986. So I started with the Mutant Massacre and the Avengers Under Siege storyline. Daredevil Born Again had finished the month before. As for DC, I didn't discover them for another year coming in with Millennium. Mm. Well, the Marvel side of that was really good. Uh, the Mutant Massacre and uh, Under Siege. Um, uh, that's that's definitely up there with one of my fa- as one of my favorite Avengers stories. That was uh, something that I discovered by accident, um, far after the fact. Uh, 1986. I was six years old. I wasn't really reading comics uh, like I would be in a few years, but I did find a uh, like a bagged collection of that run of Avengers comics in, I think it was like a $5 box where uh, they just, you know, assorted arcs and storylines together. And I didn't know what they were. I just saw that they were older issues of Avengers and five bucks was a screaming deal to me at the time. And uh, I grabbed them and... Uh, yeah, I fell in love with that run, that uh, that arc. Uh, Under Siege is wonderful stuff. Uh, Born Again, another great um, great story there. That uh, and another one that I I discovered late, of course. Um, on, across the street at DC, you have Millennium. So uh, yeah, uh, Millennium, <laughs> not my favorite, uh, not my favorite at all. I had actually. I found Millennium in, I think, the same box that I found Under Siege in. Uh, it was at a, a local shop that was uh, putting together arcs. And I think I got that for $5 as well and just knew that it was a... I knew that it was a big crossover event for DC, but I didn't know much more about it. And so I bought that, tried reading it, couldn't get into it at all. Um, kind of just put it away for a little while. A couple years later, I tried it again. Couldn't get into it for, for, you know, not for lack of trying, but I couldn't get into it. Then I started the blog at Chris's on Infinite Earths, and I decided, okay, screw it. I'm covering Millennium. And wow, that was a tough, tough eight days to, uh, to write about uh, Millennium, because if you don't know about Millennium, it's an eight-issue series where only, like, the first and the last issue mean anything. Uh, everything else alludes to events that happened in other books. Uh, Millennium is something like 20-something chapters, kind of like our X of Swords that's coming up, uh, where there is, of course, an eight-issue series of Millennium, but the other chapters play out in assorted DC comics. You know, you have Detective, Suicide Squad, Action. Every DC comic had a chapter of Millennium at the time, or at least that's how it felt. So you'd have to read everything to get anything out of it. Because if you just read the 8-issue Millennium series, 
it would just give you footnotes to where the where the fun and cool stuff actually happens because the main Millennium series is not great. Um, we've actually got an episode of Weird Comics History that covers the entire Millennium <laughs> event, and uh, it's probably about four hours long. It's a long one, but uh, maybe worth checking out if uh, if you're interested in, in a refresher on Millennium. But uh, if you came into DC with Millennium and you stuck around, then bless you. <laughs> I don't know that I would have been able to do the same. Uh, my introduction to DC was with the death of Superman, which uh, was when I was 12. So uh, that was a little bit uh, easier of a landing in this brave new universe than uh, than might have been with Millennium. Uh, now Damien wraps up his message with, uh, I'm all in for a year of Christmas stories. You could probably do it solely with the X-Men stories. They've got a whole lot of Christmases crammed into those 10 years. So <laughs> that was... Uh, in regards to my mentioning a potential Christmas on Infinite Earths program that I, I was kind of thinking about launching, I still I still might. Um, I've got a lot of uh, new projects that are in the embryonic stages right now. Uh, I'm partnering up with some folks and uh, uh, putting together a schedule right now. Putting together... Uh, working with like format and frequency, knowing when these, how often these episodes will come out, and how we will, how we'll format them basically. Um, but they will be coming soon. It'll be a late f- new fall season <laughs> for this channel. Um, just as a, uh, a teaser, uh, there will be some uh, new universe content uh, for you know Marvel's 25th anniversary uh, to play in with uh, what Damien just said. Uh, so there will be New Universe, there will be ElfQuest stuff, there will be Maze Agency stuff, there might even be some Legion of Superheroes stuff that are, that'll uh, that'll be sprinkled throughout our uh, monthly offerings. So look forward to that. Um, I hope uh, I hope you all are too. That, that sounds like it's going to be a great deal of fun. But uh, maybe we'll get some Christmas stuff peppered in there as well. But I think that is where we'll leave it today. Uh... The weakest issue of New Mutants, I can only hope that the second part of this, and and hopefully the final part of this story, is a little bit better. (laughs) We will see as we get there. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. As I've mentioned a couple times now, I've gotten back into the swing at Cosmic T-Mill on Twitter, trying to... uh, Trying to share out some stuff from the archives to uh, get some fresh ears and eyes on some content they may not have known existed. So uh, we'll see how that works out. Hopefully, uh, hopefully folks are digging it. Hopefully, I'm not annoying people <laughs> and overflowing their uh, their timelines. But uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's nice for me to uh, be able to uh, to go back through the archives personally and uh, and pick out some some treats for for the new listeners. So. I'm having a good time with that. Uh, you can find all the show notes and the stuffs at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. Xlapse has its own page at xlapse.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. Um, what else? The audio archives that are that are they are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can find thousands of hours of audio for thousands of hours of listening. So if you have a uh, I don't know trip to the moon coming up, you know. You, you might have some stuff to listen to for your trip. Uh, other than that, I think that's uh, where we'll leave it today. Uh, one more huge thank you to everyone for uh, listening and hanging out and uh, sharing your time with me and uh, and reaching out. 
very, very much appreciated. Uh, but until next time, when we will be discussing X-Force number three, I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to a late evening edition of X-Lapse. This is episode 29, and uh, I feel like kind of an idiot. Um, (laughs) I've been sitting here with intermittent internet all day, and uh, worried that I wouldn't be able to record this until I realized that, uh, hey, I don't need to be online to record this. I can record this just on uh, Audacity. I don't need to be connected to any internet. So, uh, wasted a lot of the day waiting for the internet to come back up. Hopefully it'll stay up while I'm trying to uh, upload this uh, to the uh, channel, but uh, I guess we'll see. Now this is episode 29, and we're going to be discussing X-Force, volume 6, number 3, February 2020, cover date, and uh, we should hop right on in. The story is called The Skeleton Key, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Joshua Kassara, colors by Guru EFX, letters VCs Joe Caramagna, uh, designs Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman, edits Robinson White Sabolski, $4 on sale December 11th, 2019. Now we open with a very purpley flashback showing us how those uh, Court of Owls doctors nipped and tucked from Domino's skin in order to build their assassin army. They see uh, Domino as an evolutionary skeleton key, hence the title of this very issue. Now, we see canisters full of folks, with particular focus on a pair in the forefront. One looks like the uh, the young X-Men, either ink or tattoo, I don't remember what his name was, it was something like that. And the other one kind of looks like Colossus. Not sure if they're actually those characters, but I figured it's worth a mention nonetheless. From here, we jump to our roll call, and we got a lot of characters here. We got Wolverine, Kid Omega, Domino, Beast, Jean Grey, Sage, the Morlock Healer, Black Tom Cassidy, Magneto, and Professor X. So, uh, spoiler alert, I guess. Uh, uh, From here, we get the credits, yada, yada, yada. We resume in the present. 
and we're at that South Korean printing press where we left Wolverine and Kid Omega. Now we rejoin them, and they're stood before Domino's canister, and, uh, you know, they're pretty ticked off. Uh, Wolverine ultimately cuts Domino free, but then one of those giants from Attack on Titan busts into the room to take the heroes out. Before we get more of that, though, we do shift scenes back to Krakoa. Jean Grey, Beast, and a newly online Cerebro helmet are walking toward the hatchery, having a very Percy-esque forced conversation. Beast wonders aloud a bit about the value of life and death anymore, uh, perhaps being the voice of a certain portion of the readership. Jean changes the subject and starts talking about her old family vacations, where the Greys would stop at cemeteries and her folks would lounge in the shade of tall tombstones and she and her sister would hunt down the oldest graves in the le- in the yard. What a what that's some fun family time in it. That's a little morbid. Uh, from here we get a comment from Jean wherein she says, quote, "I've died more times than anyone can keep track of." Can we retire this already? I get that it's cute and it gets a cheap pop, but at this point I swear Jean might have died the least out of any of the heavy hitters of the Marvel Universe. Uh, I mean, she's only really died twice, right? And died is in quotes because the first time she was just in a stasis cocoon at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. So, I mean, if we're still counting that, I guess we could say three times if we're counting the mother mold mission from Hoxpox. But still, I mean, I'm thinking since the time she's actually been gone at the end of the Morrison run till the time she came back... Most of the Marvel pantheon of heroes have died more times than she ever died. So can we can we maybe stop this little uh, little narrative here? Anyway, they arrive at the hatchery, and uh, then a certain bald gentleman is just about to be born. We hop back to Seoul, and Wolverine picks up Domino as he and Quentin flee from that giant mass of meat. Logan notices a collar around Domino's neck, and get this, it's of the power-dampening variety. Seems we uh, can't go an episode without some sort of mutant power dampening device, right? Uh, Wolverine slices it off, which returns all their mutant powers to flowing. Quentin manifests a big ol' psionic rocket launcher and blasts the beast in the belly. We jump from here to the healing gardens on Krakoa. Sage and the Morlock healer are still trying to monitor that final Wetworks character, and it's not looking all that promising. He's alive, but at this point he's in no position to talk. Kind of begs the question, didn't Gene already read his mind last issue? Eh. Oh, well, whatever the case, Sage and the healer leave the body in the gardens. Once they're gone, however, a hand covers the wetworks guy's mouth and nose, suffocating him to death. Now, this hand looks a little bit plant-like to me, uh, so perhaps this is Black Tom, or maybe it's the island itself. We get an info page titled The Fifth Assassin, and it's pretty dull. From here, we jump to Magneto, who's giving, who's preparing to give some sort of press conference in Washington Square Park, New York. Now, Black Tom is freaking out, like he seems to do quite a bit. Uh, the folks want to know if the rumors are true. They want to know if Xavier's really dead. They want to know if the Cerebro helmet is really kaput. How did this news even get out? Um, did, like, Kitty blab it to a reporter while drunk? Maybe Quentin Quire tweeted it? I don't know. But it seems like this is a... Information I probably shouldn't be getting off the island. So, Magneto is just about to address the public about the recent happenings at Kokoa when he's interrupted by the man himself. Charles Francis Xavier is alive and well. 
From here, we jump to an info page, because of course we do. This one's about the Cerebro Sword. Now, you remember last issue, Magneto shaped the shrapnel of the busted Cerebro helmet into a sword. So, uh, yeah, that's basically what this is all about. So how many swords are we up to at this point? I mean, we got the Cerebro Sword, right? Betsy wields a sword as Captain Britain. Quanon has her katana. Magic has her soul sword. I feel like I might be missing a couple or six, but uh, we're getting a lot of swords, ain't we? Uh, we jump back to Soul. Quentin Quire is using his powers to help Domino regain the functions of her depleted and dissected body parts. She comes around and is able to begin speaking lucidly once more. She reveals that she remembers a man. A man with a peacock tattoo. Just then, there's a big explosion. What the explosion was, I couldn't tell you, since this trio will be back on Krakoa in the very next panel. And so, we return to the point, which I'm assuming is on Krakoa. It's underneath a great rushing waterfall here. We join Xavier as he addresses Wolverine, Choir, Domino, Magneto, Beast, Jean, and Sage. They chat a bit about their new enemy before Xavier officially christens them as his X-Force. We get a, you know, a cute to me, my X-Force line. The scene segues back to our Court of Owls, where they're talking about Xavier defunding various shadow agencies around the world. And turns out that members from all these agencies, Weapon X included, have come together in this strange, you know, eyes-wide-shut-looking group here. And they are called Zeno, or Zeno. X-E-N-O. However you want to pronounce that. That's what they are, and that's the issue. Next episode, we'll be wrapping up the number threes with everybody's favorite, Fallen Angels. But uh, first, let's talk about what we just read here. Got a lot of bebopping around this issue which uh, thankfully limited us to only one very forced bit of dialogue. Though, that scene was a doozy. Um, I tell you, I grew very tired of the all-new X-Men. You remember the uh, the Silver Ages that were brought to the present after Avengers vs. X-Men? But I swear right now I'd be down with swapping our beast for theirs. Um, I think we'll keep our gene, though. I think that's a, a good a good trade. Um, now, the conversation here felt predicated on getting to Jean joking about how often she died, which I feel kind of misses the point, and it also reinforces a narrative that doesn't quite hold as much water this side of the year 2000. I mean, sure, joke about Jean dying and coming back, well, back when comic book deaths meant a little bit more, right? But now, which character in the Marvel Universe has di- hasn't died at least twice? Right? And and even in the time Gene's been away since two thousand four or whatever, how many how many characters in the Marvel universe, how many main movers and shakers in the Marvel universe haven't died? But I guess you gotta get them retweets and retumbles or whatever, so you you play to the cheap seats here with these uh these uh, you know, way played out narratives. So that led to us getting Xavier back. So Xavier's back already, uh, but at least they didn't do it in the very next issue. That said, it still feels a little too soon, doesn't it? I mean, this uh, this is quick, <laughs> you know? I guess this is just the sort of thing we're in for right now. Um, so, honestly, I guess I can't be too mad at it for being what it's supposed to be. Though, now I have this, uh, this feeling. I can't shake the feeling that... Um, we just went through this Death of Xavier bit just so Magneto could forge that Cerebro sword. I'm, I'd am i actually bet money on it. 
though I suppose I could be mistaken. It just feels like a very roundabout way for us to get a Cerebro sword for an upcoming swords-themed event. Uh, now, the scene with Domino being rescued was fine. Uh, the meaty monster was just kind of there. Uh, as mentioned during the synopsis, he looked, or it, looked a lot like something out of Attack on Titan. So, uh, at this point, we've got a Titan and an Evangelion unit in the Hox Pox Docs world. So, I guess they're, uh, I guess they have their inspiration. Um, now, Domino, when she was rescued, was wearing a mutant-powered dampening collar... Can we please be a little bit more creative here? Um, this is starting to feel like if every villain in the DC Universe started carrying around a chunk of kryptonite. It's not clever. It doesn't really feel like that much of a handicap for our heroes, and it's not upping the stakes in any real way. It's just played out. We've had two episodes in a row where we're discussing power dampening, and it feels like it feels like every other issue, somebody's powers are being dampened. It's let's let's be a little bit more creative. Um, Overall, though, uh, for the most part, despite my nitpicking, I had a pretty good time with this issue. Um, our newly revealed, or at least newly named, threat of Zeno, or Zeno, I'll, I'll withhold judgment for now. Uh, I'm, to be honest, I'm bracing to be bored, but I'm hopeful that I might be pleasantly surprised here. Uh, really, uh, you know, we bebopped around so much this issue that just isn't, there really isn't a whole heck of a lot to, uh, to discuss. Um... I mean, that, that Wetworks character was snuffed out. We don't know who did it. Do we care? <laughs> I don't know that we do. Because um, maybe it's Black Tom getting a little bit of retribution. Maybe it's Krakoa itself purging, you know, a non-mutant from the island. But it doesn't matter, does it? It really doesn't seem like it matters. Uh, Zeno, uh, we, they seem to be preparing to make their move anyway. So it doesn't matter whether or not... Professor X and the gang know who they are because they're going to make their presence felt. That's basically how we ended the issue with them proclaiming that they're going to do what they have to do. Uh, the art here, let's talk about the art. Uh, first, the cover of this issue was is awesome. I love the cover of this issue. It's Jean Grey wearing um, the Cerebro helmet and with a whole bunch of swirly stuff around her. It looks really, really cool. I like it a lot. I've been looking forward to reading this issue just for the cover, really. I thought it was a, a very cool and very striking cover. Um, the stuff, you know, between the covers, though, I mean, this is the uh, darker art. Um, I'm very focused on things like the body horror and kind of goriness with the meaty bodies and stuff. Um, it does the job, but... Um, I, I shouldn't come at it away from pages wondering if I'm actually seeing the right character. Like, early on in this issue, I made a comment that one of the characters in a canister looked like Colossus. I, I shouldn't have to guess, right? Uh, that, that should be pretty clear, whether it is or not, or if it's just another Xeno character that uh, we aren't supposed to recognize. Um, you know me, though. I, I search for things where they're not, <laughs> so that could be... That could be it right there, why uh, why I saw what I thought I saw. But uh, it gets the job done. Um, for the most part, it's very, very good. Uh, but uh, in, a few, in a few scenes, the, uh, maybe the intention doesn't quite, uh, doesn't quite translate through the art. Um, speaking of, you know, dialogue and, and words, uh, we had that scene between Beast and Gene early on, which... 
felt very, very forced. Um, I would like to not read an issue of X Force where I'm where I have to make comment on that, but uh, I guess that's just where we are for now. Um, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Other than that, I'd say that this is probably a weaker issue of X Force, but a strong issue among the other number threes. So uh, <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Um, kind of damning with faint praise there, I suppose. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I got to say about X Force number three. Uh, we do have a very brief mailbag segment that we will wrap up with. This is uh, from our friend Damien regarding Marauders number three. Now he says, a great issue of Marauders. Jerry Duggan is doing a great, a good job of showing how bad Shaw is. I joked in my feedback on Marauders number two that Shaw is a loser, but he actually gets creepier and creepier as this series continues. And yeah, you know, um, I really appreciated this issue because of its focus on Shaw. And uh, because, you know, if you just read issue two and then we just continued with the story without really a spotlight or a focus on Sebastian... You know, we would just think he was kind of a neutered loser. Um, but here he's being depicted as a, you know, trying to at least be one move ahead of his opponent at all times, right? He's trying to find allies. He's, you know, positioning them in, in places of power. He's poisoning their minds against their common enemies. It's all very good. It's all very good. And I look forward to a more uh, sinister side of Sebastian Shaw in upcoming issues here. Um, I hear that... I've heard from Damien a few times, and I've heard from other people that Shaw, he's a bad man in these issues, and I'm looking forward to seeing that play out. Now, speaking of Sebastian, I'm not, I'm still not clear on his involvement, if any, in Shinobi cramming his own head into it, hand in his, into his face, right? But I'm guessing that'll probably eventually be revisited or resolved one way or another as we move along here. Um, we did see that Sebastian was there in the wake of Shinobi jamming his fingers into his face, but uh, I don't know. We don't know. I, I well, We don't know. I mean, other people know. I don't know <laughs> where that story even happened. So um, I'll leave that for something I'll learn later, or if anybody wants to chime in with exactly what went down, that'd be cool too. Uh, back to Damien, he says, As for Shinobi, I remember reading his first appearance in X-Factor and being intrigued by him, but feeling like he was underused in the Upstart storyline, which felt more focused on Fenris and Fitzroy. It didn't help that the Upstart's first storyline killed the Hellions who I loved. Yeah, Shinobi was uh, kind of jobbed out, right? <laughs> he was jobbed out of the Upstarts pretty much straight away. He was made to look like just like a, a privileged, snobby kid who didn't have what it took to actually play the game. You know, he was there because of who his father was and nothing more. Um, uh, Trevor Fitzroy, he took the crown, uh, you know, as it were, with his very first appearance. Um, after, as Damien mentions here, taking down the Hellions, uh, he also thought that he'd taken out Emma Frost and Jean Grey that issue, too. This is back in Uncanny X-Men number 282, 281, 282. <laughs> I think 281. Um, of course, uh, just about none of these deaths actually stuck. Not even Beef. You know, poor Beef didn't... <laughs> his death didn't even stick. Um, and you know, in the age of, like, mutant resurrectability, now might be, like, the best time... better better time than ever to bring back the upstarts, right? Uh, because deaths don't really matter so much, and you can keep racking up points. 
I mean, imagine the amount of points you'd get for killing Wolverine like a half dozen times, right? Uh, This could be a really interesting story in the making, or just something from my, you know, addled brain. Um, You know, if only Bill Jemis and his weirdo epic imprint were still around. Maybe we'd get the answers to these questions. But, uh, yeah, that's a... Thank you so much for the uh, email, uh, Damien. And uh, I think this is... This might actually be the shortest episode yet. Uh, Just not a whole lot to say. A third part of what I'm assuming is going to be a six-part arc. (laughs) So it is a uh, middle chapter. So I don't know. Um, I'm finding the further we go, the more um, the the prophecies that I've been told are, are starting to make sense here. I was told by... Just about everyone who engaged early on during Hoxpox that uh, not to expect the the quality um, and the exceptional nature of those books to uh, to carry on through the ongoings, and uh, I didn't want to believe it, uh, but uh, here we are. You know, um, we're gonna keep at it though. Of course, we're gonna try to get unexlapsed as we work through this, and uh, just hope for the best. Unfortunately, our next issue is Fallen Angels number three, so <laughs> hopes are not high. But, you know, that's when you're the most surprised. You know, when you have no hopes for something or when you have low expectations for something, you really can only go up, right? So, fingers crossed that Fallen Angels number three is, uh, wows me in a way that the first two issues did not. Um, I'm not holding my breath, but we'll, uh, we'll be optimistic. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find all the show notes and stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com or xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can find us on Facebook at 90s X-Men, and you can find the complete audio archives over at ChrisAndReggie.podbean.com. Uh, we're getting uh, we're getting out early today. We're we're getting out early for good behavior today. So uh I want to thank you all for hanging out and reaching out and uh, sharing your time with me. Uh, It really, really means a lot. So put a button on it right there, and until next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to X Lapsed episode 30. Wow, 30 episodes. That's a, that's a pretty big deal, right? Well, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, today, we're going to be wrapping up the Dawn of X number threes, which means today's Fallen Angels Day. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Fallen Angels, volume two, number three, at a February 2020 cover date. The story is called Seppuku. Written by Brian Hill with art by Simon Gudransky. Colors by Frank D'Armada. Letters VCs Joe Sabino. Designs Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Or the edits are Robinson White Sobolski. This one had a $3.99 cover price in the USA. And went on sale on December 11th, 2019. Now, before we get into this story, um, just something that happened this morning. Uh, now, it's funny. After reading episode 29's X-Force bit, right, uh, I did something I don't often do when it comes to, uh, you know, putting together an episode of X-Lapsed. I actually scrolled down on the Marvel Wiki page for the issue. Now, full disclosure, I do check the Wiki every day that I do an episode just to confirm the release date for the issue. But that's generally where my Wiki research ends. You know, the, the release date is right there on the top, right under the cover. Bada bing, bada boom, I confirm it, and uh, I move on with my day. This time, however, I decided to scroll down uh, out of curiosity and to see whether or not there was any mention of Colossus being captive in Zeno's canister, and I found nothing. Then curiosity got the better of me, and I checked out the pages, the wiki pages, for some of the other books that we've discussed here, and also nothing. Now, it would seem that the moderators of the wiki uh, are only bothered to synopsize Hoxpox stuff, which, I don't know, feels a little bit half-hearted. Um, now, the way I look at it, if you're going to maintain a wiki, you're gonna, if you're going to build a resource for the fandom, you either do all of it or you just don't bother. Uh, it feels kind of cheap only covering the big books, right? Um, as a guy who uh, creates content... Uh, I'm, I would say I'm fairly prolific. I, I'd never say that I was good, but uh, facts are facts. I am prolific. For just about five years, I've been doing something every single day. And I struggle to find an audience. I struggle to find folks to listen or to read or to watch or whatever. And when I get in my own head, you know, and I think about the struggle to find an audience and, uh, and I get kind of down on myself that's where I try to reframe what I do. Um, what I do is sort of kind of evergreen. Um, uh, this might be less so, this program, but uh, I try to keep my content as evergreen as possible so someone may find it at any point in time. And that's where I start telling myself that I'm building a resource. You know, for future researchers, comic historians, whatever. If uh, anybody wants to hear about you know, five five issues from the mid-70s where Vartox appeared in Action Comics. It's there. You know, I, I feel like I'm building a resource here. And I understand that there are... I mean, there's cheap heat out there, right? I could do... You know, I could do every issue of Crisis, and I'll know that people will look at them. I can do, you know... Uh, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. I could do Watchmen. I could do the... I could do the hits, you know, and I know people will come. But I'm building a resource, so it's all or nothing. 
So I see these, uh, I see these, you know, wiki pages for uh, these Dawn of X books, and they're blank because I have a feeling the people <laughs> who write these things realize that ain't nobody gonna look for Fallen Angels number three, but they will look for House of X number two. So they spend all their time doing that. I, I, I don't know why that gets under my skin so much. I, I actually I do know why it does. I feel like if you're building a resource. Well then, damn it! You build a resource. You don't just you don't just play for the hits. Um, but yeah, uh, I'll get off my soapbox here. It's just something that jumped out at me when I was just trying to find out if Colossus was in that canister in X Force number three, and I found Diddly and Squat. But uh, but I can find five or six people trying to do the do the page for House of X number two with the uncanny lives of Mora X. <laughs> it's a uh, I don't know, that just gets under my skin. But, alright, so we're, we're talking about a book that very few people care about. It's, you know, definitely the people at the wiki don't care about it. We are getting into Fallen Angels number three. Okay, so, we open the very beautiful cover, and uh, we, get, we open with another purpley prosy page, wherein Apoth refers to itself as a god, and Quanan as the mother of god. We even get a riff on Michelangelo's creation of Adam painting with a machine finger in the role of God's own. Uh, it's already just a little bit head up its own ass, and uh, we're only three panels in. Then we get a full page of our trio of heroes stood before that giant spidery mech from last issue's cliffhanger. While we're looking at the cast, let's meet them. And it's a pretty short list. It's just Psylocke or Quanon, Cable, and X-23. After two more wasted pages, we're back to comics. Cable launches into an attack on the mech and is swatted away. Now this leaves Psylocke and X-23 to hide behind some debris to plan their next move. This gives Quanon the opportunity to tell X-23, a killing machine, how to do her job. She says that the enemy deserves Laura's rage. And so Laura snicks and bum-rushes the bot. I... Don't exactly know why Psylocke felt the need to hold her back when she ultimately just told her to go kill the thing. Uh, I don't know, this mentor-mentee relationship between the two of these uh, these characters here feels incredibly forced and wildly unnecessary. Anywho, Laura slices and dices, and once she makes her way to the soft nougat of the monster, of the spider bot, that is, uh, Psylocke reels her back. You see, there's a tiny child inside the machine who begs not to be killed. In Portuguese, which, thankfully and conveniently, Laura understands. Psylocke taps the tot on the head to read its thoughts and is overcome by what she sees, but we'll put a pin in that for now. We shift scenes and we rejoin Cable, who is strung up in a tree by his arms. He's ultimately freed by a shadowy figure and is invited to accompany it so they might discuss the future. Now, from Cable's point of view, this thing looks uh, kind of like a, I don't want to be crude, but a very diseased part of the female anatomy. Cable fires at it, but is suddenly struck in the back of the head by a machine part, which looks as though it's lodged itself into his dome. Cable smiles. I, at least I think he's smiling anyway. Uh, the creature tells our man that they can now behold the peace of the one mind, and let it cleanse him. Ugh. Then, two pages of prose. 
Just what we needed. A break from a pretty dull story with some even duller text. It's titled, Excerpts from the Scrolls of Exile. Nope. (laughs) Though a quick scan of these pages, I can see the word butterfly no less than three times, so... No. Back to Psylocke. Now she's scanning that kid's brain and learns that... Doi, Apoth took the children. I thought we already knew this. I, I don't know why this is a revelation. The kid in the bot then dies. Psylocke X asks why Apoth keeps taking children, to which Laura reminds her that, you know, Quanon had a child taken from her, and so this all feels kind of like a message to her. Apoth, overclock, it's all about Quanon. The ladies then spend an entire page having a wildly forced back and forth. They ultimately come to the conclusion that they're going to have to call off the search for Cable and instead go after the children, because Cable would have wanted it that way. Which is fair enough, I guess. Speaking of Cable, he's once again strapped to something. He must really be getting used to like that spread-eagle pose, because he's always strapped to something. He's addressed as part man and part machine in perfect unity. And we finally see this creature out of the shadows and uh, has a page... Out of, like, a recent issue of Spawn somehow fallen into our Fallen Angels book? Because this... Uh, <laughs> this is uh, kind of uninspired here. Uh, goes without saying, this is to be continued. At least we're halfway through. Next, we will be discussing not X-Men number four. That one skipped. Instead, we're going to be jumping right into Marauders number four. But first, let's... Let's talk about this. This was... Well, this was more or less just a fight scene. And uh, one that doesn't inspire me to say all that much, unfortunately. Uh, I'm starting to feel like I should save all of our mailbag correspondence for Fallen Angels Day just to get some extra minutes (laughs) added to the episode. I mean, I know that this is a free show. uh, But with subjects like this... I still can't help to think that I'm somehow ripping you all off <laughs> in some form or fashion. I really can't think of much to say here. Um, I couldn't imagine coming away from this having spent $4 and feeling as though I'd gotten my money's worth. Uh, the art's still strong and the cover was beautiful. But at the end of the day, there just isn't all that much in the way of meat on these story bones. Um, what do we got? A fight with a spider mech. Cable got taken away by that gross whatever-the-hell-ghoul thing, and that's it. We seem to learn the same facts about Apoth that we've already learned over the course of the last two chapters. I think we've learned it each chapter, so this is the third time that we learned that Apoth kidnaps and uses children. I mean, yeah, we saw that in the very first panel of this series. I'm really not sure why this was treated like such a revelation here, but whatever. And at this point, I'm just vamping to fill time. Uh, this is just... There's nothing to say about it. I didn't hate it, but it didn't inspire me to want to read on. Naturally, since this is a completionist program and, Graham and I am not a writer at the Marvel Wiki, and also I'm an idiot, we will see this one through to its conclusion. Just like with the previous two issues of the series, I can't say it's outright bad. It's just not for me. If this sort of story is your jam, then you're probably on cloud nine and you're digging the hell out of it. So, that is that. Since this is the final third issue of the Dawn of X run here, let's uh, let's rank the books in order of uh, 
I can't say quality, but in order of how, how much I liked them. Number one for, for Dawn of X Books 3 is Marauders. Um, it wasn't the greatest issue, but this was kind of a, a ranking of attrition <laughs> week here. Uh, these were exceptionally weak offerings from uh, the, the entire spectrum of X-Books here. Marauders, I did enjoy the most. So Marauders gets top slot. Second, I put X-Force. Third, I put Excalibur up, you know, like two slots from where it usually is. Fourth is X-Men with its, uh, you know, the Golden Girls, the old ladies. Fifth is New Mutants. And sixth would be Fallen Angels. So, you know, it is a different week. It is a pretty different week here. Marauders, though, probably out of the three issues we've gotten from all these books, Marauders is the most consistent. You know, I, I wasn't the hugest fan of it last week, but uh, but yeah, this is probably the most consistent book of the line so far. So there's the rankings. I look forward to hearing other other folks chime in on what they feel uh, were uh, were their rankings for the third issues of the Dawn of X run. But uh, now before I let you all go, let's dip into the mailbag here. We got one from Damien, and he is uh, referencing X Force number two and Excalibur number three. Now, he starts with, At the risk of becoming too self-referential, I need to respond to your, to your response and my feedback. First, I really don't think writers are using Beast as an author mouthpiece. I think his change of character is down to the general cultural shift with sees, which sees nature as good and science as bad. Like Reed Richards and Hank Pym, Beast is being portrayed as flirting with villainy. This is not just a comic trope. Stranger Things would be a good example of this trend. It genuinely seems that writers are incapable of writing heroic scientists nowadays. I know in the UK we have seen some very bad real-life outcomes from the identification of science as paternalistic and controlling. Hopefully we're seeing a reevaluation which will be reflected in our stories. And that's a very interesting take, and it's not one that I had even thought of, though. Your point is very well taken. Um, I'm trying to think here about heroic scientists and uh it's insane uh the only one i can sort of think of off the top of my head is is walter white and he cooks meth so (laughs) it's that's as close to a heroic scientist that i can think of so yes your point is very well taken (laughs) i still do uh maintain that i feel as though beast is a uh a lot of a lot of the writers' um, points of view are being funneled into Beast. I, I do feel like that is something that is happening on top of it as well. And I could think back to, uh, you know, the Matt Fraction run uh, was uh, was one where I felt like Beast was being uh, was being what the writer wanted to to have said. Uh, the, some of the Bendis run, um, yeah, I, I still maintain that 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 that's how I feel at least. Um, you mentioned Stranger Things, which is one of the uh, one of the bones of contention I have with my wife. She wants me to watch it with her, and I won't. Um, I watched part of the first season until I realized that it was ripping off basically like the last three video games I'd played. It was like such a one-to-one ripoff. Um, I'm watching, and I had just played a game called Beyond Good. Oh, no, Beyond Two Souls. It was uh, one of those David Cage games, um, kind of like. Uh, Heavy Rain, or that one that the Detroit one, I think, whatever the whatever the latest one was. Um, but in it, 
it is basically a one-to-one. Uh, the, the folks who, who created Stranger Things ripped it off pretty much wholesale. And then they went to the underneath part, and I'm like, wow, now it's, stra- now it's Silent Hill. And my wife was like, okay, we're done watching this together. <laughs> You're just going to tear it up. Um, yeah, not, not, not too keen on that show because I, I think it is uh, wildly overrated. But I don't know, maybe later seasons it's uh, less of a ripoff and more of its own thing. But I probably won't find out. Um, now back to uh, Damien. He says, as for the worst X book ever, I've never read Mutant X. I have read a couple of the issues of Chuck Austin's run. I particularly remember the Havoc Polaris wedding two-parter as a huge waste of money. In fact, I probably would have to declare that worse, a worse story than Fallen Angels. The truth is that Fallen Angels is a perfectly competent attempt at poet, poetic, sexy, bad girl comic from 1995. It's a good version of a bad idea. The Chuck Austin run was a bad version of a terrible idea, and to this day I wonder how it got published. I cannot see how the same editorial structure could allow Chuck Austin and Grant Morrison to be on the book simultaneously. And no, when I when I mentioned that a couple episodes back, I was definitely being a bit hyperbolic, uh, as I assume you were as well when you were talking about Fallen Angels number two. I try to keep things even-handed, and I'm sure most listeners might have noticed. Uh, even today, didn't love Fallen Angels number three, but I can't outright call it a bad comic. Uh, it's just perhaps the most un-me comic that I've tried to read in over you know quite some time. And I feel if we're just taking things as X-Books, right, um, it's probably the worst, you know, in, in quotes here, X-Book, in the terms that it just doesn't feel like an X-Book. Now, the Chuck Austin run, warts and all, felt like an X-Book. A bad <laughs> X-Book, but an X-Book nonetheless. Fallen Angels does not. Fallen Angels, I maintain that this could have been released as a lost, uh, you know, a story that, uh, what's his face, Jim Valentino found in his desk that had a 1995 date on it. And, and we wouldn't we wouldn't think anything else. You know, we wouldn't think anything the wiser. Outside of, you know, X characters being in the book, of course. It's funny that you mentioned the non-wedding of Havoc and Polaris. Uh, I feel like that's where the worm really started to turn on Chuck Austin. While people, myself included, weren't enjoying his run, Especially when, you know, you pair it up with, with the Morrison run. Um, I don't know where I'd put the Joe Casey run, because uh, the Joe Casey run was another one of those divisive runs. The Joe, Joe Casey was who Chuck Austin would replace. And I remember that being a pretty split uh, divide in the X-Fandom, whether or not that was any good. I wasn't a fan of it. Um... I didn't like that uh, Joe Casey brought his automatic Kafka um, partner, Ashley Wood, with him for some issues. Uh, Even Uncanny X-Men number 400, you can barely make a thing out of it because it has this this Ashley Wood art, which worked great in automatic automatic Kafka, but for Uncanny X-Men number 400, no, 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 no. Um, But Chuck Austin came in and... uh, he had a little bit of fanfare when he came in because he had just done uh, the U.S. War Machine for Max, uh, which wasn't great, but it wasn't awful. Um, and he was doing... Uh, he did a two-parter in Ultimate X-Men. It was a Gambit story, which was fairly re- well-received. Uh, so by the time he came on to Uncanny X-Men, I think, I think people were 
I don't want to say cautiously optimistic, maybe they were just optimistic. But the wedding of Havoc and Polaris was where the worm really started to turn and where people started to realize some of his uh, habits. Uh, People started to question and grumble about Austin perhaps having some uh, issues with the fairer sex, you know, with women issues. And if you reread his run, which I suppose I wouldn't recommend, his portrayal of women is kind of suspect. Um, They're really only there to service men or to be insane. (laughs) And really no middle ground there. Really no middle ground. So... Um, I think that's where the worm started to turn And people were just like, wow, this guy is not worth our time Even then I was a completionist, so I kept up with the whole thing Um, and Yeah, it wasn't a great run (laughs) It really wasn't Uh, I remember they brought in Kia Asamiya To do the art And everybody had like these Beaks, you know, these tremendously pointy noses, and it just was not uh, like Angel was made like a like a Bishonen character. If you're familiar with the Bishonen manga, the Pretty Boy manga, but Asamiya's art isn't pretty, so it just looked like a really bad version of of an attempted <laughs> Pretty Boy. So, not great, not great. Um, now, Mutant X, you said you haven't read it, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but. At the same time, it's kind of one of those books that you almost have to see to believe. Because if you question how the Chuck Austin run got published, if you read Mutant X, oh man, you're, you're going to wonder how, how this got published. <laughs> because it was at the, at the, at, toward the end there, like the second... Actually, only the beginning is decent. Everything after that, you're going to question how this made it past an editor's desk, how somebody agreed to pencil it, (laughs) how anybody agreed to sign their name to it. I mean, I mentioned it before, Howard Mackey wrote it, and he had to write his next X-Men book under a pseudonym (laughs) because it was that poorly received. But uh, yeah, I'll I'll leave it at that. Um, Back to Damien, he says, On to the issue at hand, and this is, of course, Excalibur number three. It remains underwhelming. Why is Shogo a dragon? Because. Huh? Why is Richter unable to control his powers? Reasons. It just feels a bit pointless. And you're right. It totally does. These are very, very convenient bits and bobs being sprinkled in, which, you know, I've made this, uh, I've made this criticism before, and I think I've done so with X-Force. It feels to me a bit like these stories are being written in reverse. And again, nothing inherently wrong with that. But I feel like if you're going to do that, the seams shouldn't be showing quite as much as they do. It feels here like everything is in service of a greater a greater good or a greater point. And it all feels very, very meticulously backwards written, if that makes any sense. Um, to me, it feels like... You know, it's almost like a magician doing a doing a uh, doing a trick, but holding the instructions as they do it. So, like, you see all the steps, you know, um, you see all the seams, and by the time it all pays off, it feels like it's it's been telegraphed. So, I mean, we talked about the Cerebro Sword. It's like, okay, that would be novel if we didn't see it coming. Um, 
Or, but then again, I could be wrong. Who knows? <laughs> uh, Damien wraps up his message with, I'm fascinated for tomorrow, which was New Mutants 3. I can't wait to hear your reaction to New Mutants number 3. I know I genuinely thought you'd I'd bought the wrong book. And yeah, oh boy. <laughs> By now, uh, you might already know how I received New Mutants number 3. And I gotta say, you're 100% dead on. It almost feels like I picked up the wrong book, or at least the wrong issue of the right one. Because this one came out of nowhere, uh, knocked me <laughs> right off my feet with like how much "huh" <laughs> was in this issue. Uh, I was ready for Deathbird. <laughs> I did not get Deathbird, and I never thought I'd be disappointed not to get Deathbird. But here we are. <laughs> Thank you so much for your thoughts, Damien. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Uh, next, we have a uh, message from Jason. Uh, now, this is regarding New Mutants number three. And he says, you're right. We've already seen a plethora and a half of power dampening already. Uh, I know that the real reason is that the writers can't have the muties easily win every fight. In-universe, I can rationalize that by saying, hey, given that the mutants have gone and gotten all uppity lately, one expected response by all sorts of human groups would be to pour resources into anti-mutant tech. Does it make sense for this group of hicks to have access to that tech? I don't know. It'll depend on who these hicks turn out to be and whom they're connect and to whom they're connected. So yes, this is an excellent point. And uh, if we're doing like headcanon here, it's it's pitch perfect, right? I mean, that makes all the sense in the world. Uh, this is a new landscape, and the mutants are, you know, they're flexing right now. You know, they are flexing their power, and they are not being shy about the fact that they are, in many ways, superior. You know, um, this is this is the whole tone and tenor of the Dawn of X run, is that the mutants are, they have the upper hand. So yes, it makes perfect sense for all sorts of human groups, human scientists, human engineers, to try to find, and, and I made this reference last time, um, we had a power dampening bit, that I, I said it felt like all the villains in the DC Universe were suddenly carrying a chunk of kryptonite. Now, Batman has a kryptonite ring, which makes sense, right? That's just in case. So I could definitely see this as being one of those, uh, you know, in case of fire, break glass sort of situations where we need these power dampening things just in case. Makes perfect sense. I don't have enough faith in creative to <laughs> to think that that's why they did it. I feel like it's still it's still kind of lazy. Um, uh, you know, your, your, your point notwithstanding and how much sense that makes, I feel like the writers should be a little bit more creative and they shouldn't all be leaning onto the same thing at the same time. Now, if it turns out that these hillbillies are working for Zeno, hey, that makes sense, right? It could very well be that. Um, I don't remember if the Orcus people have power dampening things. I would assume they do, but, uh, yeah, it just seems... It seems like we're going to this well just a little bit too often, and uh, I don't want to say it's love diminishing returns because it's not the most interesting thing in the first place to have our mutants try to work around not having their powers. But uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm not reading these in the progression that I should be because I'm doing these episodes right now every day. Um, so I am reading a book every day. So instead of waiting month to month and seeing a power dampening thing 
you know, once every couple of weeks, I'm seeing it every day. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, hail on a tin roof for me, where it's just like, oh, God, again? <laughs> and that's, I think a lot of my complaints about these, uh, these books are a result of the, the manner in which I'm receiving them. Uh, the frequency in which I'm reading them, things like the double-page spread of creds that that gets under my skin because I'm seeing them every day. The info pages are just like, okay, let's move on. And here we are with power dampening. So, I don't know. (laughs) I'm just talking to talk right now. But back to Jason's message. He says, by the way, I know it's a cause lost worse than the literal meaning of the word literally, but the phrase should really be power damping, not dampening. Damping means to reduce the amplitude of a wave by draining off some of its energy. Dampening means to make slightly moist. <laughs> That's true. I don't. I'm now. Now you have me second guessing myself. I'm, did the books call them dampenings, or did they call them dampings? And I'm just calling them dampenings. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think I've always just called them dampenings. Um, <laughs> Jason wraps up with, uh, "I had a high school physics teacher who impressed the distinction on us students by spraying us with a water bottle, like we were cats who had jumped up on the mantle again. Anytime we use the incorrect term, now that's what I call pedagogy. Easy for me to say, pedagogy. Pedagogy. I, I know I used to be able to say that word. I don't know what it is now, but that is a very good point. <laughs> that's." It's funny because I think earlier this episode I said uh, I said that I'm a prolific creator of content, and prolific is one of those words that I think people don't really know the meaning of. Um, I think people when they hear the word uh, prolific, they think there's an automatic assertion or assertion or illusion to someone being really good at something or something being of top quality. You know, oh, they're so prolific. When it's like, no, I just. <laughs> I just spit into a microphone every single day. That's what makes me prolific. Quality is, you know, I'll leave that to other people. And uh, and uh, oh, and if and if uh, if you don't think I am, I I, I apologize. But uh, thank you so much for sharing, Jason. Um, I did respond a bit on Twitter to your message, but I I wanted to give fuller thoughts or at least more rambly ones here on the air. So thank you so much for uh, for reaching out and following along. It's always a treat hearing from you. And finally, we have a short little thing from Andrew, our friend Andrew at Mighty Evil Doom on Twitter. He says, I'm about to listen to all the number threes at work today, minus Fallen Angels, but that's fine. And uh, I just wanted to include that because I love hearing that. I love uh, hearing that that folks will have me in their ear all day. (laughs) As scary a thought as that is, because I literally have me in my head all day. And it's it's not always the best thing. But... uh, no, that means so much to me that uh, that people enjoy this content uh, enough to uh, to subject themselves to my voice for uh, extended periods of time. Um, I did uh, respond to him and uh, warned him that these number threes were a little lacking, um, <laughs> and he had a very nice comment in return. He said that uh, he said that he just he enjoys the commentary more. So I that means the world to me. That really brightened my day. So thank you so much, Andrew. Um, and now, hopefully, you're listening to the final, the, the Fallen Angels uh, episode here, and you'll see that uh, the quality of the number threes did not uh, did not soar to the skies. So, <laughs> fingers crossed, the number fours will be better. But we will uh, we will find that out soon enough. But that's where we'll leave it today. Uh, I want to thank 
everybody for uh, listening and reaching out. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at uh, Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find me at Chris's on Infinite Earths and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. And uh, I also started a Tumblr thing. I don't know what Tumblr is, but I, uh, I realized that I could share links there. So I have a tumbling page here. <laughs> it is, it's under X-Lapsed, so I don't know how you search on Tumblr. I tried searching a little bit, and I couldn't find anything. So I think that's something I might just be too old for. Uh, but... Eh, it's an avenue, so we might be able to find some new ears and some new hearts to reach that way. We will see. Um, the audio archives, chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can find thousands of hours for, hopefully, your uh, listening pleasure. So those are there, and they're just waiting for your ears. So uh, one more time, I want to thank everyone for listening. 30 episodes, a nice round number, right? That's uh pretty cool so thank you all for sharing your time with me for sharing your ears with me and uh for being there for me i really really appreciate it but uh till next time as always i will talk to you again real soon see ya